Andre carried on agonizingly, trying to understand what sort of game this was that he was playing, what its purpose was, what the rules were. And while this was happening, and he was transfixed to the depths of his soul by the question, how had he become the adversary of the great strategist? He, a faithful soldier in the strategist army, prepared at any point to die for him, prepared to kill for him, not knowing any other goals except his goals, not believing in any means except the means indicated by him, not distinguishing the plans of the great strategist from the plans of the universe. He greedily gulped down the champagne without tasting anything at all, and then suddenly he was overwhelmed by a blinding flash of insight. But of course, he wasn't an adversary of the great strategist at all. He was his ally, his faithful helper. That was it, the main rule of this game. It was played not by adversaries, but by partners, allies. The game had only one set of goalposts. Nobody lost, everybody won. Apart, of course, from those who would not survive until the victory. Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. We are back with a book episode, and we're talking about a massive tome, but a fantastic, essential novel called The Doomed City by the Strugatsky brothers, uh, or, or Kadi Strugatsky and Boris Strugatsky. And we are joined by Mr. Martin I thought Kessler. it was Arcady. How are you doing today, Martin? I thought it was Arcady. Did we not decide on this beforehand? We, I, I went with Arcody. Is that not Arcady? Arcody is definitely not right. Arcady? Arcody is our favorite character from Step by Step. I'm going to stick with... How's it going? going to stick with The Doomed City by the Strugatsky brothers. There we go. <laughs> and we're joined by Martin Kessler. How you doing, Martin? Not too bad. Not too bad. Thank you for having me back. Thanks for being here. I'm so sorry I missed doing the Total Recall episode with you, which this will actually come out before. So everybody, wow. there's a Total Recall episode with Martin coming out after this sometime. Yeah, things but I'm not on. Things timey-wimey, which feels very appropriate for this book. So Yes, exactly. That's true. <laughs> Unstuck in time, these podcast episodes. Um, yeah, but Martin, how you doing? Uh, we figured you would definitely be the right person to talk to about this book. And we're going to get into the reason why. Uh, but uh, let me just give a little plot synopsis just to kind of go into it because it is kind of a very oh, dense Oh, a little, a a little plot synopsis. Just a quick yes. plot yeah, synopsis this, of this book. I mean, this is a big, like, even before we jump into it, I, I want to say, like, I was a little, little bit dreading to this because, like, up till now, the books that we've covered on this show have been pretty small and, like, I don't know, 200 page kind of books and things that weren't necessarily considered like the magnum opus of their author's work. And like the Strugatsky brothers, you know, they're considered some of the most important science fiction authors of the 20th century, probably. And this is like their magnum opus. And it's this big 450 page book. <laughs> it, it had been sitting on my shelf. I got it around the same time as I bought the paperback for Heart to Be a God, I think maybe in like 2016 something like that and it's been sitting on my shelf and i've just always like occasionally looked over to it and it's like oh, I'll, I'll get you someday <laughs> so i'm glad intimidating, we're right? talking it about is. it now but yeah it's, it's it was a little we're bit at a Casca territory here <laughs> indeed we are this is actually the first one i think that we brought to you usually you're the one who uh, proposes what book we do so we wanted to really make you do your homework on this one. We wanted to make you get it off the shelf. I, I'm glad you yeah, I really, it off. I really, exactly like you, I really wanted an excuse to read this. I really wanted an excuse to read this. And I felt like a podcast episode will, will make me 
hunker down on it in a way that mm -hmm. I might not otherwise. And I said, well, if we're doing the Strugatskys, we got to talk to Martin, of course. Like, I actually don't want to do this episode without you, you know, not not because you're some uh, aficionado, but just because I feel like you're of the right mindset for us and the, and the right uh, approach to it on top of it. So thanks for doing it. <laughs> Thank you. So the Doom City, okay, the title city is a place outside of Earth, not wait, another planet. Wait, 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 is it? The title city does anybody in the book refer to this as the doom city just the, just the just... city of the title the doomed city of the title is a place outside of earth not another planet i, but... I disagree that that's supposed to be the doomed city but go on all it's right john doomed city let me start from the, the beginning <laughs> all right the doomed city takes place in a city <laughs> that is a place outside of Earth, not on another planet, but a hermetic world resembling a rundown garbage city to which denizens of various different times and places of 20th century Earth have been collected by some unknown power for something referred to as the experiment. We got a British colonel from World War I, a German soldier from World War II, a Russian astronomer from the early 50s, an American professor from the 60s, some of the examples of the main cast inhabit the city all of whom somehow speak the same language despite being from different countries and different parts of time. No one really understands how they got there. It's kind of going, it goes back and forth as to what brought them there. Um, and nobody knows the point of the experiment, but to different degrees, they go along with these surreal characteristics of the city, which include random baboon attacks, buildings that randomly change location and a sun that is turned on and off like a light bulb. And our main character is Andre Veronin, an astronomer, and a Leninist, Stalinist from Leningrad circa 1951, which is the post-war Stalin era. And the book is divided into chapters detailing his various movement up the social ladder as part of the city's uh, diversified labor programs. So first he's a garbage collector, then he's a police investigator, he's the editor of a newspaper, and finally he's a high-ranking counselor in the science and technology division of the city's new government. And each change in position brings him closer to a disillusionment over his confidence in the experiment, one that ultimately leads to the edge of the world and a kind of thematic breakdown of the Strugatsky's own disillusionment with the political history of their country. So huge ideas, a lot of philosophy, a lot of characters. Um, but before we uh, get into it, let's do, uh, start with pairings, right, Chris? Yes, I think we should start with pairings. And right as we went to record this just now, I realized my pairing I actually picked for the other, another episode we did with you, Martin, right? And it makes me, I was going to pick Carlos Fuentes' Terra Nostra, right? Which is, I think, a great pairing with this. This is this massive three-part novel that sort of tells the entire history of Hispanic civilization while jumping around through time. It sort of shifts between um, the, the 1500s and the, the 1900s sort of, seamlessly and without warning. Um, it's, it's a novel that's very similar to this one in terms of um, just its idea about like, what if we talked about all of the philosophy and art and human history embodied in, uh, in a culture? You know, what if we talked about Western culture in some way, specifically Hispanic culture, although I think Doom City is more pan cultural than that so i can't pick it again even though it's a perfect fit but what i would say this is my now clever answer 
my pairing is going to be the book I picked it for, which is The Eternal Mercenary, Casca, The Eternal Mercenary. That's my pairing for Doom City. I think it would be interesting to read sort of like the dime store uh, dislodged from history version of this story. I think they have a similar um, interest in militarism as an organizing principle of humanity. I think they have a similar interest in re religion as an organizing uh, principle of, of human history. And I think that it would be interesting to read Casca right before you read this book. Um, it's also obviously interesting to read Terra Nostra. Terra Nostra is a masterpiece. I think maybe that's my dual uh, uh, aperitif pairing for both of them. Um, and one is also what I would say about Doom City, what makes Doom City such an interesting book or not one of the many things. This, this is the book really with the, I have not read a ton of Strudaxi brother stuff. This is only the fourth novel of theirs that I've read. And I would say that this one really makes you read it and you go, these are literary figures, not sci-fi figures, maybe. And I think if you read something like Casca, that's definitely not literature, and read something like Terra Nostra, that is definitely literature, and then put Doom City in the middle of them, it might be an interesting way to contextualize the literary aspirations of this book. And the ways in which I think, the only thing I, reason I think it might not be hard big L literature is I'm not sure they aspire to it. They seem capable of it, but I think that that they have a different set of interests is my reaction to it. I, I think you're right. I mean, there's one line that jumped out at me in particular that I think gets at what you're saying when they're talking about the lack of books. And I think, uh, I forget if it's Andre himself or one of the characters says like, well, there's no Tolstoys, neither Leo nor Andre. And if you know, like Leo Tolstoy, of course, but Andre Tolstoy, he's the one who wrote Alita of Mars and the the Garen Death Ray. And like, <laughs> to me, you know, it's sort of the Strugatskys kind of like tipping their hat to like, you know, yeah, there's the Leo Tolstoy, but we're also kind of on the Andre Tolstoy <laughs> side of Well, also late, late in the book when they sort of reference in a weird way, like what's the most important novel in human history? They sort of pick an example and it's Wells's War of the Worlds. Right? Like when they have to pick an example of the realizations of philosophy and the meaning of the universe, they pick War of the Worlds in, in a funny way. It's not as simple as that. They pick it for the character in that way. But I, I agree with you that I, I sort of think they do think of sci-fi stuff as being as important as literature in a very unpretentious way, that it is as important to them uh, to to maybe not abandon that and and put their sights on, they don't want to be Finnegan's Wake. They they don't, I don't yeah, think. No, like, I mean, one thing I, I would also try to make clear is that as intricate as the novel is and big, it's it's also not, I mean, it's funny, it's, it's, it's fucking interesting. Awesome. It's, it's a book it's you great. read. Like it's, yeah, you're like, yeah. this book is fucking awesome. This is fun it's, to read. It's not just like a heady kind of, home like it kind of looks like that at a distance and then you get into it and there are and moments it's, it's when you say not, this would yeah. make a great video game or this yeah, would make a great yeah. movie sorry to keep it around. I mean, well i mean for my pairing i tried really hard to find a piece of science fiction that kind of fit like i almost went with dark city because there's a lot of superficial kind of similarities but something about the 
the tone and the meaning didn't quite feel right as appearing. So I, uh, what came to mind is uh, this Polish film called Pharaon about ancient Egypt. Uh, Jerzy Kavalerowicz, who's like one of the premier Polish filmmakers, especially in the 1960s, he made Night Train and Mother Joan of the Angels. Oh, okay. And um, this film got recommended to me by a friend, Jeremy Workman. And he's like, oh, have you ever seen this like Polish film about ancient Egypt? I'm sure you'd love it. And I did, but there's a phrase they use in the book uh, in Doom City. There's like a segment where the sun's not turned on for an extended period of time. And I think they call it the Egyptian dark or the Egyptian night, something like that. And kind they of call it the, both. They call it the Egyptian I think darkness that, yeah. and the, then the mentor calls it the Egyptian night. And like Pharaoh just immediately came to mind because there's this sequence in the film. Um, I guess it's a novel too, but I've never read the novel. But, you know, where the priest kind of manipulates the masses knowing that an eclipse is coming and there's like this big sequence where he's doing it to kind of cement his his religious authority and his necess necessity to the Egyptian public. And it's set at a time period. I mean, it's it's great because it's like one of the only films I've seen about ancient Egypt that doesn't have any like Bible shit in it. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's all sort of set in this period when Egypt was kind of declining. And it's kind of about this young prince, the pharaoh to be, the son of the pharaoh in conflict with the priests and sort of showing Egypt falling into this like eternal conflict and Cairo being almost like this doomed city. And it's interesting too, just how multinational Egypt was like even, I forget when it's said, like maybe 600 BC or something like that. It's around the same time as the Assyrian empire because they reference like, hey, there's Assyrians and there's Hittites and there's Jews and, you know, there's all these people kind of intermingling in this uh, Egypt that's declining. And I know, something about the way it's portrayed where you have this Egypt that feels like so distant in the past and it at the same time is a nation that like went so much further into the past. Like, uh, you know, to think, you know, when you're talking about something being contemporary to the Assyrian Empire and it's like, oh, this is an Egypt that had this like long glorious history that's now kind of coming to an end. It's it's like a little bit of a, for me, it, it feels like a mindfuck being like, oh, like it's that much more ancient than, you know, all these uh, reference points that you usually have for history. And I don't know, it, it's just a really great movie. I mean, the, the opening sequence is, is perfect where you have these two scarab beetles fighting over a ball of shit. And it's kind of the metaphor for like the, Prince and the priest kind of fighting over this like Egypt that's sliding into decline and you have the whole army being halted because they can't trample these like holy scarabs and having to go around <laughs> uh, and they have to like fill up this like trench that this guy spent his like life digging up to like have have his children be free and then they like just bury it or uh, to cross it for the military and the guy ends up like hung and I I don't know, it's a really, really oh. great film and something about it just like sticks in your mind. I was talking to my father about it and he was like, oh yeah, that movie. And he knew exactly what I was talking about. He saw it maybe 50 years ago. So it's like, uh, I, I think one of those films that if you see, maybe it'll stick in your mind, but something about just the way that Egypt was portrayed in the internal conflict and the kind of people from all these different places and the, the idea of, you know, this ancient civilization that's so kind of stuck in tradition and uh, feeling the need to change, but then it, it turns into all this like eternal, internal strife. And 
I don't know, e Egypt, it, it's just got such kind of like fascinating history that really it's gets awesome. touched on considering how many films there are. And like the fact that they were conquered by <laughs> pretty much everyone at some point or another in history just makes it like an interesting confluence of cultures. And I, I don't know, I, I think like it's, it's not science fiction -y as it is like it's history it just feels well, I was kind of like the say, right there's, fit for something like that there's something about ancient egypt that is very science fictiony yeah. there's a well, reason that it always gets lumped in with like the ancient aliens and stargate sure. more than any other ancient civilization it has something about it that feels like if you were to discover alien ruins they'd look like ancient Egypt. But also like the fact that the film's in Polish, it, it feels like extra strange where, you know, you're watching ancient Egyptians speaking in Polish. And I don't know why that would be stranger than ancient Egyptians speaking English, but it did kind of make me think of the doomed city where they're all speaking in their own languages and all understand each other. And like, there's some kind of weird disconnect with them watching this thing where it's like, oh wait, that's like Polish coming out of their mouths. And like, it just put me in this kind of mindset where it feels almost like, yeah, it's history, but it, it feels more like uh, on the Silver Globe or something like that than, you know, Cleopatra or one of those kinds of movies. It's also interesting to think about how for the other towering great ancient civilization is Greece, but Greece is still, we're still connected to Greece in a very direct way. I would say that Western civilization and therefore by extension because of Western civilization's dominance, all of human civilization is very informed by Greek thought and Greek philosophy and Greek art and Greek myths. We know all about them, um, that it's very much still a living culture, whereas ancient Egypt is just as formidable and complex as a culture, but it died. It doesn't live on in the same way. I mean, it's not completely dead. People know about the Sphinx and, you know, Nefertiti and things like that, but it's not living in the same way that that Greek is and the Latin of Romance languages and all of that. It, it does feel like some other alien thing. I think it's the closest thing we have on Earth to an alien civilization in that way. Have you ever seen uh, any of the artifacts from the Kingdom of Kush? No. Yeah, this exhibit on it in the um, at the ROM not that long ago, I went and like, it was such a weird experience because at a distance, uh, Kingdom of Kush, I think it's like in modern day Sudan, it's, it's like to the south, but they kind of conquered Egypt and then borrowed some of the Egyptian culture. It's like, you know, when you conquer somebody, but you kind of integrate your cult the other yeah it's the nation, Manchur the manchuria culture. problem right where... it's like mongolia but like yeah. I, I was walking through the museum and then i start seeing these things and like at a distance they look egyptian but they all look off i'm like wait there's no there's no egyptian god with like a line for a head right and the pyramids <laughs> are these like long skinny little you know they're pyramids but they're black stone and they're pointy and it, it was such a strange experience to like see something at a distance that i thought was egyptian and then like walk up close to it and be like oh this is a different culture and like it was clear that it was influenced by Egypt but it, it was just such a like I I think maybe I'd heard the name but that was like my first kind of real encounter where I'm like oh wow like that's that's something I yeah. hadn't seen before so <laughs> anyway well it's cool I want to check out Pharaoh I'm you know a big fan of Joan Mother of Angels it's funny too the the bit that you said about the person digging the trench made me think about the foundation pit the uh, Platonoff novel which uh, gets name dropped in the Doom City they mentioned Platonoff at one point and there's, you know, a novel about workers who are, you know, forever digging this pit. And by, you know, by the end of the book, nobody remembers why they're supposed to be doing it or what the work was about or anything like that. Obviously a huge thematic sort of theme about the novel anyway. 
Uh, I for my aperitif, I picked. Um, I always like a uh, opportunity to talk about my favorite era of uh, Doctor Who, which is the um, late '60s Patrick Troughton era when he played the Second Doctor and uh, their version of the the Doom City, their big, huge um, masterpieces. To me, the the War Games, his final serial, which is a long ten part series, and the plot of it is that um, uh, basically this rogue uh, Time Lord has. Uh, pulled all these people uh soldiers from different wars from from all from human history and he's put them all in the same place so they're all in different sections but they're all on the same planet and the doctor arrives and has to figure out you know what he's going to do to set this right but you know it has these really interesting philosophical ideas as they go from one you know microcosm to the next of you know these um outdated ideas that each each prejudice that each one has that kind of led to these wars throughout human history and kind of thoughts about, you know, why these things exist and how human conflict sort of survives, even though the ideas are, you know, old and uh, in arcane at this point. It's also kind of just interesting in the terms of British history, because British schools would play war games ever since World War One, right? It's like it's part of movies like Lindsay Anderson's If and things like that, where, you know, they would actually have the students prepare for war by, you know, doing these mock war games that were like a huge part of the culture, you know, in schools in Britain, which I think really plays a big part in the war games as well. And uh, it aired 1969, incidentally, which is the same year that the Strugatsky started writing the Doom City. And, you know, I just kind of like how, you know, these very different sort of science fiction uh, bits of culture kind of, you know, relate to each other in some way, even though they were kind of happening at the same time. So my pick would be the war games. It's just almost like, the plot is almost like someone took all the Casca books, Martin, smushed them all together in one series. Sounds delightful. <laughs> <laughs> you had Casca all on one, all in one place at one time. He was going from one war to another, literally just walking from one place to another. That's what this thing is. So, it's great. All right, you guys want to dig into this uh, book? Where should we start? Should we kind of take it section by section? What do you think, Chris? Uh, maybe I was going to say, do we want to give its history first of like their writing and where they were coming from, and it's sort of. Uh, not even suppression. They didn't even try to get it published, essentially. Should we go through that first? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, before we get into, into it, Martin, do you want to do you want to handle that aspect of it? Are you, are you sure. capable of I, it? I can start with that if you guys yeah. want to jump in. Uh, I guess they started writing it in 1972. And the phrase that I, I found kind of coming up that kept being used to describe it, that uh, Boris Strugatsky used to describe it, it was like writing on the table or a book on the table, which is this idea that you're sort of writing a novel that you're never really intending to publish. And, you know, for years, um, you know, they, they wrote it in 1972. It didn't get published till like the Historica era where things started like loosening up. And it's this period of reflection for the Soviet Union and things are actually getting published. Films are getting released. Um, it it kind of gets released around then, but for a long time, I, I think they, thought it would never see the light of day. And it was just sort of this thing that they would pass around to France. And I, I think they said, you know, they were worried that you could have somebody do a, a search of their home and find this thing and they'd get in trouble. So they would pass it around. And like, sometimes the, the manuscript would be over at a friend's place or like they, they would kind of have to hide it to some degree because this wasn't supposed to get out of there. I don't know. Have you seen the movie Dovletov by Alexei German Jr.? No. Uh, he's, uh, he was a famous writer, poet, journalist, um, but that, that film sort of shows that period when these things were in circulation, 
in secret, but not in wider publication or distribution. There's like a funny scene in that movie where he's he's talking to this like black market book dealer, like, hey, hey, can you get me copy of Lolita and the guy's like yeah I could get you Lolita and then he pretends to be like working for the government and scares the guy <laughs> but it, it was sort of that era or you know like um, even certain films kind of got suppressed like I, I wrote about Alexi Gorman Sr.'s Trial on the Road which was one of those films that it was made almost at the exact same time as this was written and sat on a shelf for almost exactly as long so there was quite a long stretch where if you're creating something that uh, maybe could get you into trouble it, it there was a high likelihood it wouldn't see the light of day until the late 80s. Yeah, at the time, the Stugatskis were like huge in the Soviet yeah, Union, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, even outside the Soviet stuff. Union, I, I think like in Europe, there there were some of the most widely read authors. Um, and it's interesting to me that like this is something that they wrote without real intention of having it be read at the time. And it, it's so readable. <laughs> like it, it doesn't feel like I, I don't know, maybe that's exactly the kind of thing you get when you write for yourself, but it, it doesn't feel like it's this totally insular thing. I know they said, uh, not that it's like their most autobiographical, but it's like the thing that they put the most of themselves into. And you, I think you can really feel that. And there's a lot of parallels to some of the other things that they've written. It's in some ways it feels apart from their, their other science fiction stories. It's almost like a big thought experiment kind of novel but there's a lot of things like the the sense of humor the timey-wimey spacey waziness of it i found uh, it very you know, similar to um roadside picnic I yeah it structurally very it's, it's very similar like I, I think maybe to the point where roadside picnic was almost like a, like hey this is like a publishable version of doom city where you know right right down to the ending where it's kind of like oh you know but the ending of heels of together Dorothy and go home like it, it's roadside like picnic's kind of, ending is so beautiful and hopeful and yeah. the ending of this is so terrifyingly bleak you know right it's, 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 it's is, even closer to their earlier novel snail on the slope if you've ever read it that that almost feels like a dress rehearsal for this book in a lot sure. of ways. I've only well, I've only read roadside picnic which is probably their best known novel because it was turned into stalker by Andre Tarkovsky Hard to Be a God is the other one I've read because it's also made into a, a very good film and a very bad film uh, by uh, Alexei Garamin is the is the good one. And that's, I'd say, is in the West. Those are their two most famous novels. And then the other one I read was Dead Mountaineers Inn, which is terrible and unreadable, right? And <laughs> well, I think it, it if might you were be going the to translation, write... but... <laughs> It's it's trying to be funny and it's not funny. And I think that you're right that a lot of translation type stuff, it's trying to be like sly funny and maybe you need a perfect translation for that. But I just, I detested that thing. And if you would ask me what's the book they wrote for themselves as a series of irritating private inside jokes, I'd be like Dead Mountaineers in. There's no question. <laughs> you know, Doomed City feels like the other two. Doomed City feels very similar to Hard to Be a God and Roadside Picnic, you know? Without a doubt. And uh, so that's the history of it. And it did eventually get published, I guess, around 1989 was when it officially was released, right? What was it? The Perestroika? Is that what it's called? Yeah, that that sort of, like around 88, 89, I, I think is when it finally saw the light of day. Uh, and like, I think they, they talked about even then, they sort of had to lie about like, well, we wrote the first half in 1972 and we wrote the second half later on. So there was a little bit of confusion about like when it was actually written. Like some people sort of assumed they'd been quietly working on this for for years and years and it was like this thing that took 
you know, over a decade to write. And then they were like, no, we actually wrote it pretty fast. It just sort of sat there for a long time. Yeah. But uh, I wonder for some reason that made it more acceptable if they're like, oh, well, we didn't write it all at once. You know, like this isn't about a specific moment in time, guys. Like, <laughs> I wonder if they would have been more confident had they published it under its original title. Is he Katzman in the search for the Crystal Palace? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Uh, yes. Uh, isn't the original title My Brother and I? Which I find very cryptic. In the afterwards uh, of the of the edition, I have Boris Strugatsky talks about a lot about a lot of this stuff, and he mentions that's the original title, to which I which is just like I don't know what that what that means, other than the main character has a brother who's died uh, during the Korean War, I believe. I can't even remember when his brother dies in it, um, uh, or he dies in a conflict in Korea. Now I now I get now I'm not getting that right, um, but it's a uh, it's a very strange title for it. You know, it's a very strange title for it, uh, and the inceptions of it are sort of strange. What they plan to do with it is strange, but also that the um, Rorich painting, the doomed city, inspired it. And then when you see that painting, this is like such an unremittingly like like the darkness of the sky is oppressive in it. It's a it's a it's about a city that's bordered on one side by an infinitely high yellow wall and on the other side an infinitely deep void, right? And the sun itself is a light that turns on and off during the day. Uh, and they're not sure where the light is located because the further they go away from the city, the light does not appear to be in a fixed place in the sky, right? It has an oppressive darkness to it. It feels like a book taking place under a ceiling that's very close. It's a book that feels like it's taking place under a pile of trash, under a heat lamp, in a desert. You know, just medically like, sealed pile of trash. Yeah. yeah, that there's just a pile of shit everywhere you look in this book, right? And something vaguely like oppressive and disturbing no matter where you turn. It's got a phenomenal tone. The painting doesn't look like that at all. The painting looks like a sort it's of standard. And, yeah, it looks yeah. like a Yes album cover. You know what I mean? Like it looks like. <laughs> It looks like I'd live in the doomed city. You know, you sort of do get that, <laughs> that feeling when you look at it. Um, I mean, it's interesting. I thought a lot too about like what this would look like as a movie. I, I kept kind of getting the thought because like you've had some fantastic filmmakers adapting Strugatsky Brothers' work. I mean, we already mentioned a few, but there's Days of Eclipse, which is the adaptation of Definitely Maybe. There's Ugly Swan. So, you know, you have big names like Sokorov kind of dabbling with that. So it's, it's sort of tantalizing to think like, I wonder what this would look like as a movie, who should adapt it. And like, I feel like there's such a strong atmosphere and some of those visuals you get through through the descriptions of the city itself and the, the red house that's moving around and stuff like that. It, it made me kind of think how this would look visually. And it's, um, I don't know, it, it's definitely like tantalizing to think how that would be translated. Maybe it would be a, a great, Euro TV kind of adaptation, like rolled on a wire in the eighties. Like, well, I'm not funny. even sure you could really do it now, but because I've been playing Elden Ring, I it's easy to imagine El this looking like Elden Ring. You know what I mean? It's just <laughs> right. a, just like charred corpses and unexplained yep. statuary, and sort of like expansive spaces not we, attached to civilization. Statues coming to life. Yeah, and like maybe there's a Stegosaurus out there. Yeah, and like sort of inexplicable god-ish creatures. Mm. You know, that maybe aren't God, that are maybe just assholes that show up when you're at a site of grace and don't tell you anything useful, right? <laughs> um, 
I think that that it sort of has that that feel to it as well, like someplace with definite borders like that, where you know, same thing where Elden Ring doesn't have the traditional yeah. invisible wall of open worlds; it just has a huge cliff. You know, but like how um, I mean, open world video games that how they close off those worlds because you can't make it infinitely large. Yeah. It's exactly like what they're describing in the book. Where like, oh no, I ran into a wall that I can't scale. Oh no, there's an abyss on that side. Yeah, I, I guess I have to go north into the desert, and it's like that's how you would find your objective. I, I think that's yeah. pretty astute. Like to me, there is something very kind of video gamey about the Strugatsky brothers' stories at times, or something that would lend itself to that kind of story. Well, of course, they made the, the and, game inspired by Stalker. Yeah, you know? Stalker, Hard to Be a God's a, a pop was a popular video game too. Um, but like, I, I think it, it's partly this idea that they're telling their story through the environment. You know, there are these interesting zones with objectives. And like, that's something about that's a very video gamey kind of storytelling. I, I think more so than some films, you even, know, like- Even something like The Red Building feels like an old yeah. side scroller where like you, you miss something and then it disappears and you're like, God damn it. And you have to like <laughs> run back again and hope it reappears again. You're like, there it is, good. No, there's a building in one of the Fallout games that's very red building-ish to a point where I was like, I bet they read this. I bet they are, they at least heard about the red building. That's just sort of like you walk through a door and then you're in the basement kind of place, you know? Mm. Um, but let's go, let's go through this, this story piece by piece. Each, the first um, four sections of the novel, there's five sections and a conclusion to it, yep. five major sections. The first four sections are, one is each named after <laughs> the profession that our hero Andre Vronin is in at the time. So you have section one is the garbage collector. Section two is the investigator, where he's a detective. Section three is the editor, where he's the editor of a sort of... Um, liberalish establishment newspaper right where it's both sort of it's it's easy to connect it to sort of modern journalism in a lot of ways that's what i found very funny especially reading the well, political he section he calls himself a, a censor and then he's like wait wait it's not what you think like i'm not like censoring censoring yeah where <laughs> but... it's sort of like you have to put forward like where it's both like we're the opposition and we're the establishment you know it's very easy to connect the politics of this book to modern America in a very funny way. Um, then the fourth section- is the biggest, the biggest fight in that section is what letters to publish where it's like, these are the ideals that we're supposed to be upholding here. Yeah. Yeah. But we, but we can't publish that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. And a group of sort of yokels storming the Capitol building is the big, is the big yeah, that... the climax of that section. <laughs> That's true. Uh, the, 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 thick-necked farmers showing up with their weapons and, and storming the capital to, to unclear ends. Um, and then the fourth section is Mr. Counselor, where he's uh, been installed in a governmental position after there's been this revolution. And his buddy, the old actual Nazi transported from Nazi Germany in 1942, has become the uh, sort of like populist democratically scientifically minded president who doesn't doesn't seem like an actual tyrant and has made him a scientific minister in the city and then the fifth section is uh called continuity disrupted which is um when they've left the city finally our main character has left the city and then the final section is the just called the conclusion which brings it to a fairly quick uh draw so um the first section, just briefly, when he's a garbage collector, uh, I this book is interesting. I think there's definitely 
I would go through and, and actually ask, what's your favorite section of the book? Because they're very disparate. You know, which section do you hit the best for you, Martin and John? I'll give the, I'll give the floor to you guys. I'll hang, up, I'm a, I'll hang up and listen. I mean, my favorite section is the, um, I, well, I guess it's probably continuity is disrupted because that's kind of when you get into the, <laughs> the strange the exterior outside stuff. And like, I, I, part of me just goes like crazy for that kind of stuff. And they're out in the desert and things are just getting more desperate and more strange. And um, I don't know, I, I really like that. And, it, but I don't know. I, and they're so good at that. That's what yeah, reminds yeah. me of, um, of Roadside Picnic so much is they're good at coming up with evocatively crazy shit that makes you go, oh, what is that? That that sort of threads a line between science and and unreality in a very yeah. satisfying way. They never, it's very hard to do what they do, which is not the like, and then a naked dwarf runs in with a 500 pound psychic oh. and you're like, boo. <laughs> get out of here you know like i would actually say also and no offense to anybody but they avoid like the lynchian bullshit too they don't do like david lynch what does it mean bullshit like like the end of mulholland drive or something there's something that feels very concrete and tactile and intelligible at every moment everything is sort of tantalizingly on the edge of intelligibility or reaches a point where you can say, well, it's intelligible in the sense that any scientific phenomenon is of, you have to first accept that it's real phenomenon, right? Yeah. That you sort of say, this is a real phenomenon I've accepted, that it's not, you don't feel like, well, they've wandered into a dream or a it's fantasy space. It's not quite space. surreal. Like it's, you feel it, like you've wandered sort of into something sounds where like the, it is, but... the physics are all fucked up somehow. Yeah, I mean, again, that's very similar to Roadside Picnic where you have things like the one of the ones that always sticks in my mind is like, but I think it's two metal balls that you can't push close together, but can't pull yeah, apart. Yeah, the, like, full no what, the full <laughs> empty. The full empty. The full empty. So stuff like that just like sticks in my imagination after I, I read that. And, you know, there's a couple things like that here too. And the way it's portrayed this, this desert, almost like this, um, it's this wasteland, but there's these artifacts and things that they come across and find that and just feel like there's more of a history there and they're, I don't know it, it, it's 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 hard to talk about without like building up to but like to me that's kind of the yeah well let's just build up point to it. it yeah to it real quick and then I'll let John pick his favorite section first section he's working as a garbage collector and basically we're introduced to the experiment which is that everybody who's here at some point in their life back on recognizably earth is approached by a mentor seemingly right before they're about to die or in a situation from which there's no escape and offered a chance to be part of the experiment. Well, what is the experiment? The only thing we're ever told is the experiment is the experiment, but the mentors are around and they're physical people. Although nobody ever seems to see anybody else's mentor. The mentor right. seems to be somebody that exists only for you to see and experience. It only appears, we only ever see Andre, uh, his mentor, and he only appears when there's no characters around. Well, and, in the there's form so many of different mentor. opinions on what the experiment is. Like even from the first chapter, I think there's characters who are like, eh, maybe the experiment's already over, and we're just living in the aftermath, or maybe we're in hell, or maybe you know, like yeah. I, I mean, one thing I, I think is really kind of great about this book is there are characters with very different ideologies who come from very different places, or sometimes they come from, you know, the same nation but slightly different 
periods in time or sometimes the the distinction it's like well you know yeah we're from the same country but you know you're from the city and i'm from the country and that's it's all it should be pointed out it's all um 20th century though i think every single character from the the 20th century yeah and it's also you know so you have these characters speaking from these places where they have some kind of um, entrenched ideology and it's not like anyone feels quite like a, a mouthpiece for the author you know where it, it's just you know there there are points where i think like their characters kind of speaking and espousing and it's like well maybe i don't agree with what they're saying and i, I sort of feel like you're supposed to the only character that feels like i'm well i mean andre's is the main character but it's sort of the only one that I, I think you kind of pay attention to outside of him really is is isaiah when he's talking but yeah. like you know and well, Isaiah's Yuri, like the, the yeah, Uncle Yuri and Wang, are Uncle the Yuri. two are sort of the yeah. ideological lodestars, I would say. Right, of, right. Of but Andre, where he starts off, he's he's like a true believer, both in communism, you know, where he's he's coming from, but also he's like a true believer in the experiment. And like his his cynicism that kind of grows with each segment, it's it's linked to that. And it's like by the end of the fourth or fifth chapter it's it's like you can't even acknowledge that the experiment was a thing it's like you have to pretend that like you know there is no experiment and then i forget there's a character who says at one point that uh, like well it's not like i ever stopped believing in the experiment it's just like that stopped being the doctrine and i kind of went along with it but it's it's like andre has these sort of two arcs where like the first arc is him kind of becoming disillusioned with his own beliefs, his own ideology. And then the second one, it's like, where do you go after your goals are dead, your ideology's dead? Where, where do you well, find meaning? And that's, that's kind of where uh, it takes it. I've heard this book repeatedly described as a theological novel. And it, and it reads that way. It reads very heavily theological. And as a theological novel, I found it extremely disturbing and extremely upsetting. But I find... Um, hell is real stories very very upsetting as it like as as a real uh, as a genre like the house that jack built the end of, like nothing with the murders in that movie bothers me the end of it is so upsetting to me you know but in his afterwards boris talks about how it's it's <laughs> it's sort of that but what it's really about is ideological disillusionment. And if you go back and you think about it that way, it's exactly what you're saying, Martin, of like, this book is about all of us communists believed we were going to make the world better and found ourselves in a desert completely bereft of of meaning and ideology, that we thought we were going to dig ourselves out of the garbage and we had a series of slogans to help us with this chore. And then when it seemed like we were going to get there, we realized it was just a desert of meaning, you know? And it reads, and if you think of it that way, it reads in a very tragic way that way, but it's no longer terrifying to me. It's no longer the like, hey, by the way, did you ever think that hell is real and it would probably resemble earth in some way (laughs) if it was going to be the most torturous version of hell would be one that tantalizes us with meaning and tantalizes us with, uh, with, you know, sort of epistemological meaning. I mean, it could also be that, like, like you said, it was interesting to me when I was watching um, this interview with Boris Stogatsky and he said, basically, like, it's not a science fiction novel, it's a theological novel. And that, to me, kind of recontextualized just how I was sort of looking at certain things where, I, I mean, I was even 
messaging you guys like when I was pretty early in the book I'm like I don't know like I'm kind of reading it like like it's an episode of the outer limits and it, it's not that it, it's sort of well the book I mean, opens it, it's, in uh, the first section with yeah. a giant baboon attack I mean, <laughs> yeah, we need to talk about the baboon attack have been manifested from somewhere they're out at the garbage dump our main character Andre who's a garbage collector and he and his partner Donald Cooper and uh, Isaiah, who just shows up at the garbage dump because he's everywhere. He's lovable, you know, Isaiah, are attacked by a bunch of baboons. And the baboons come and overrun the city, right? And completely are a nightmare. And then the baboons uh, become a fixture in the city and become part of the city. And sort of the explanation of where did the baboons come? What is their meaning? All anybody can sort of say is the experiment is the experiment, you know, that we, we know this kind of crazy stuff happens, right? And uh, by the end of the second chapter, the, the baboons are being described as like a bunch of beggars who are sort of given food. And I think in the second or third uh, section, there is now a, um, a society for the protection of the baboons, that the baboons right. are our friends. Yeah, when he's editing the newspaper, that it's <laughs> getting these messages about the baboons. Um, I don't and that it's first like section natural disaster, but it's yeah. also... It turns into something else completely but you know it's, it's this idea of like having a problem that you have to solve in the city and I think like what you're saying about it as this sort of ideological breakdown to me it makes it more universal than if it's like a one-for-one -one allegory for communism like I think in the um there's a uh sorry I there's a book called name, Doom City no well is that <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, there's like a note before the um, book starts, not by one of the authors, it's by somebody else. And I forgot to write the name down, but it, like in it, they sort of describe like, uh, the experiment is the communist experiment and the city is uh, Leningrad, St. Petersburg. It's and it's Dimitri, Dimitri Glukowski. Oh, John okay. and I got it at the same time. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so like, you know, I read that and it's like, I, I think... Yeah, the communist allegory, it's like part of it. But to me, that the message ultimately feels more universal than that. Or like the, the metaphor, the allegory. It it's doesn't like, yeah, feel like communist broader, Russia. That's the no, thing is it, it doesn't it, feel, it feels like more communist universal. Russia. Yeah. You know, it's like, I think. It feels like Weimar era Germany is what it feels yeah. like consistently to me. But go on. Or I was going to say it feels like right now. But, it does. <laughs> it does. Yeah. There are sections that feel like. Yeah. Detroit 2021. There's you know, no I was question. Thinking, like what's like, you know, if, if you think about your own cities, like what's your city's goal? What what are its values, its ideals? Like, you know, can, can you, how long can you live without some of those things? Um, what do you do well, if you're I Flint and there's poison in the drinking water? It's still not fixed. You know what I mean? Like there's yeah, kind of- Yeah, no, I mean like that. that's almost kind of what I was thinking with the, the baboon attack. It, it's like, <laughs> Uh, you start off with this problem and eventually it's just like, ah, live with it. And like people stop caring. And it, it's all part of this like breakdown of, of like that concept Although when of the, the revolution a, like, comes, place. Yeah. But then when the revolution comes, there's the horrifying scene where they're slaughtering the baboons and the mental patients simultaneously. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that reminded me a lot of like Verkmeister Harmonies, which is sort of, I mean, that film, um, again, I haven't read the book, but like the, the Bellatar film, Verkmeister Harmonies, it's sort of this idea that like, you know, we built the society on some kind of fundamental role. flaw. <laughs> you know, there's some crack in the system and you can't keep 
building up and building up, building up. And like, at some point it becomes unsustainable. Like that, you know, that's sort of this idea of like, there's something wrong in the basic structure that's been built up over time. And like, eventually it, it has to falter. Um, I had, I had my yeah, favorite the first... quote. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Your favorite quote. <laughs> my, my favorite quote in the book, it's, um, I had to write it down, uh, but it, it was something like, you know, if Russia doesn't believe in anything, there's not going to be anything left but vodka <laughs> and sort of this like need to believe in something. Otherwise, like what, what's what's left for a person, you know, and I, I was kind of feeling it on on that level, this book. Um, when, I, when I went into this book, I was really nervous about like understanding all of the political allegories, you know. And yeah, I, said, I, I thought it was going to be much more specific to the time. Yeah, exactly. And the way and I, people talk about it, you think it's going to be this like very sort of almost like esoteric, like, oh, you need to understand that that politician is represented by this character. And to me, it, it, again, it felt yeah. like much more universal than than like- Yeah, oh, exactly. Like and, it, and there are references that I'm like, was that a real thing or not? Like Pan Stolpaski, yeah. like, was that a real guy or not? Like I looked it up and I couldn't find anything out about him. Maybe it's a famous character, it's not. And then in the afterwards, Boris Strugatsky makes a few references to like, this is obviously a reference to Alexander Galish, right? Yeah. And I'm like, what? You know, like that kind of thing. Like that would have gotten it banned. Everybody would have understand, understood what the, yeah. the meaning of the prophet got sent up the river then meant, right? And it's, right, but I, I think it's non-specific, you know, yeah. kind of political ideas are what make it very readable. You know, I think that the idea of having a confused sort of political sort of scope is sort of the point and the kind of different ideologies that don't really specifically you know imitate any any known one you know it's kind of sort of the point of the whole thing how you know later on when fritz wants to seek out the anti-city it's almost like he needs to know what government he's supposed to be opposed to yeah, like he yeah. literally has to find an adversary he has to find like someone who is in opposition to his ideology because he doesn't know what it is you know because the anti-city on like one hand it feels very sort of Cold War era and its concept, but it's also like sort of this universal thing where it's like we have to define ourselves through opposition, and it's like, you know, right. if America is doing great, we're doing bad, or you know, if if Russia is doing bad, America is doing great. Like it's that kind of mindset but that you know you start to see like it's applicable. Or, to other or if the if and, the if the Jews are doing great, the Germans right. are doing bad very consciously in that way. And I think that you're absolutely right, John. I was going to say that those references don't matter to the book. If things slip by you or if you're not sure if they're real or not, they feel real. They feel couched in whatever it is. There's sort of, there's the book explains itself well enough that you don't need to know if Pan Stolpaski was a real traitor or not. You know, you don't need to know if he was a real famous traitor, you know? And, and, yeah. and there's a lot of references that, um, you kind of that that they sneak in there that you don't need to worry about. Like, what is an uh, what is an adjutor, right? Like, he's like, why is this word adjutor famous, f familiar? It's from Dumo. <laughs> but it also it also twenty just years means, later. Yeah, it just means saint. You know, is all it is all it means. Or that you can tell that Quejada uh, uh, is going to be the bad guy in the final section of the book because his name means complainer. That's what Quejada <laughs> means in Spanish, if you speak a little Spanish. Um, a reference I, I really... When the, oh, sorry. I, I was well, going to say, a reference I enjoyed was uh, to Lydia Timoshuk, right? Who was the one who set off the doctor's plot, which Martin knows a lot about because Kristoloff, uh, my car, is all about the doctor's plot, right? From, right. Uh, one, it was just literally just one person writing to say, there's a plot against Stalin where these doctors are trying to kill him. 
which just blew up and became like you know yeah. arresting it, doctors it left no and right. is, is kind of the thing it's like a bunch <laughs> right. of people a bunch of jewish doctors were arrested for for this non-existent plot because it was sort of like the last days of stalin when he was paranoid and uh, Chris Jolly and Makarov, the story is like, you know, they sent this Jewish doctor off to the gulags and then like had to haul him back because Stalin's on his deathbed, um, or they make a joke out of it in Death of Stalin also. I, I also liked uh, when they're talking about like leaders that have the great attached to their name, Alexander <laughs> the Great, Peter the Great, and he's like, you know, it's always the first one who's who's got the great and it's like, what are you talking about? Like Catherine the Great was <laughs> Catherine the Second. <laughs> well, that's a yeah. <laughs> You know, well, like one thing I, I really like about this book, uh, again, like sort of talking about characters with different ideologies and they don't really feel like mouthpieces is it's a book where people are allowed to be wrong. You know, I, I feel like that's not as common as you would sort of hope, <laughs> but I feel like I, I kind of appreciate any book where like characters are they're wrong. And poetically, and poetically and, yeah. wrong, too. You know, like everyone yeah. has like a really interesting take on things. Not necessarily the correct one, but everyone has their own yeah. kind of very specific ideology that's really interesting to listen well, to. Well, it's about just how blurry ideology becomes. Yeah. Um, it's it just how, how blurred that becomes. So the first section is just him as a garbage collector, and we're sort of introduced to the coterie of people that endure with him the whole time. Fritz. Which is form. a great a great framing device too to start yeah. with like you know they're all kind of garbage men or they're all kind of involved doing the same job and then as we move on they're all kind of in different positions but they recur you know throughout the whole thing and yeah. we kind of get as you said you know with the baboon situation we get this idea of like here are the problems of the city that need to be addressed uh but it leads into my what's my favorite section of the novel the investigator yeah uh, as much as i love continuity uh, disrupted and sort of the whole going to gear a and beyond jupiter or you know kind of craziness of that ending I, I love the investigator because obviously you know you have all these surreal elements like the yellow wall and the red building and this idea of people falling from the wall somehow and like shattering at the, the case of the falling of the stars <laughs> and all that stuff but also sort of it's kind of kafka-esque you know sort of obvious like his you know it's obvious sort of kafka uh, elements to it uh but we kind of open up there to where my favorite line of the of the novel i think or my i'll say my second favorite line uh, is when the um, the Japanese character Kenzie uh, says to him, "You wouldn't have happened to metamorphose. You wouldn't have happened to have metamorphosized into a secret police at some odd point, would you?" <laughs> because uh, you know um, he Andre is so bad at his job that he's you know literally trying to like you know he brings Katzman in because he's he because Katzman has been into the red building and he knows he knows something about the red building he's brought out some kind of a secret file he so what is the, the red, red building. building explain what the, the red, red building, building is the case that Andre's assigned which is people have been disappearing throughout the city and witnesses say that the last place that they were seen was going into this red building which is never seen in the same place it's always moving throughout the city and these disappearing people have gone into this building. Like an so almost animalish squatting red building that people see like ambling away, right? Yes, and reappearing yes. in new places. Yes. So he is trying to locate this red building and find out what the secret of the red building is. He does go into, he does find the red building and go into himself where it has what I would call a very the prisoner sort of sequence where he literally plays <laughs> chess with different human beings against the, the strategist, the quote that I opened our episode with. Uh, who probably is supposed to be like a Stalin surrogate, I think. Is sort no, of no, that's his brother. He realizes it's his brother at the end of that chapter. He's been playing chess against his oh, brother. Okay. All who right. was an okay. officer and that. died. Uh, is the whole, the, the, is, it called, is he called the tailgater? The, what, what, he has a name that he gives him. Anyway, 
Uh, I, I even wrote it down, but I don't. Yeah, I don't have it. But but yeah. So so after that, he his experience in the red building has gotten him so you know worked up and confused that he takes his friend Katzman, who seemingly knows something about the red building and has a file in the red building, and brings him back to the apartment and starts grilling him and trying to you know use all these secret police type tactics to kind of get him to talk. And when he can't get anywhere, he's he's happy to bring in Fritz, you know, the old uh, SS torturer, the guy who's like re- literally a fascist police officer to come in and like get, take him to the basement and get answers out of him. And the whole thing is, uh, you know, kind of almost like Samuel Beckett-esque and it's like kind of farcical, you know, uh, sort of political humor, but at the same time has all these really, like you said, the, the, low, the, the, the feeling of the low ceiling and the sort of trapped, sort of idea of like these surreal elements of the city. So it's a really interesting chapter and, and one where you start to see Andre really start to try to try to force his own ideas into whatever the experiment's supposed to be. And he's always convinced he's the one who really knows what the experiment is about, which is absurd. And how all the other characters are saying, you know, ah, you know, whatever, I don't care what the experiment is. And, you know, Casman especially putting his feet up on the desk and being completely irreverent, like, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. This is, you know, you're, you're acting like an idiot. Captain totally absurd and all the kind of you know evil policeman cliches that come from that chapter uh, are just it's a fun it's a fun read that it's a fun chapter and it does have it has the case of the red building the case of the falling stars you know it's sort of putting detectives in this world where there are uh unintelligible metaphysical inexplicable things happening is interesting the idea that the mentors who are sort of overseeing all this want them to be investigating is interesting but also don't want them to ha- to find the answers is very right. interesting that's a very um it's another perceptive... very the prisoner sort of thing yeah yeah and perceptive vision of 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 the conception of a um god with a consciousness right that that he's going wants us to explore and to know but also doesn't explain is if you have god that's a a conscious creature in some way that's interacting with us as god the thing that it's both that both wants us to know and is unwilling to explain is is very uh accurate perception of, yeah, of god yeah. in this chapter two we get kind of who is sort of secretly <clears throat> we sort of secretly the heart of this book wang the korean uh character who is brought in because he doesn't want to switch jobs he doesn't want to you know he just wants to continue being a caretaker he doesn't want to run a factory which is the next thing he's supposed to do because he knows he'll be <laughs> a shoe no factory good like it. kingo gondo <laughs> like kingo gondo shoe factory he knows that he would be bad at it he would run it into the ground but uh you know they would have taken to jail and then throw him back in the swamps you know to start at the beginning at the bottom of the ladder because he's not willing to, to play the game and andre who is trying to you know be this self-serious you know uh, police officer enforcer of the law interprets the law in a different way because it's his friend and says, no, I'm just going to let you keep being the caretaker, which I mean, I'm, I, I feel like I'm Wang in this novel. If I'm anybody, you know, I'm, I'm the guy who's like, leave me alone. I'm just the caretaker. You know, I don't want to be involved in any of this. You're like bad for the glass. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, yes, you are. You just want to be Patterson, John. We get it. You want to drive your bus and write your poetry. <laughs> Everybody's got it. You're Wang. Martin Kessler's Yuri and I'm Andre. Got it. Uh, no, I think Martin, Selma. no, Martin. Martin is clearly uh, of uh, Isaiah, right? I, I, like the I guy that every, <laughs> yeah, that everybody Absolutely. just sort of naturally likes, who's interested in science, <laughs> who has like interesting solutions to problems, you know. 
everybody from the colonel to the soldiers likes likes Isaiah. I've never met a human being that doesn't like Martin Kessler. And if you did, you'd be like, <laughs> that's the villain. If the guy who meets Martin Kessler and doesn't like him, you're like, okay, there's the villain. Like, there's one part in the book towards the end when they're like out in the desert and it's just Andre and Isaiah. And he's like, well, what are you going to do? And he's like, well, we can find water in the day and I can fuck you during the night. And he, <laughs> it's, That's a great Andre's line. just like kind of stunned for a second. Uh, my my so, actual favorite line is also by uh isaiah which is oh no oh he did there's like a fart in a trance <laughs> there's so many i gotta say the translation's I'm... pretty pretty good for this book I, I think like compared to some of the others i, I forget the translator but like there were a couple of things where i thought like maybe they've watered it down slightly like some of the language where it's like saying screwed instead of fucked or things like that i kind of wondered if maybe it was toned down that well, way. Well, Andre does say I've been floating around like a turd in the toilet. But yeah, there's so many of these like great phrases that come through and it, it just feels very natural. I had another one written down where it's like a dictatorship of mediocrity over cretins, which I thought was <laughs> great. Like, you know, there are all these little phrases that kind of jump out at you while you're reading that I, I thought, I don't know, made it really funny and memorable in uh, in a way yeah, that like I, I could imagine like translating this in a way where it, it seems much more dry. But I love the I love the farmer who says the rutting season for them is needs to rut. <laughs> and he's referring specifically right. to the to red fur crocodiles, and he says when they're rutting, brother, you best keep your distance. Well, that's what I love about this book the is the red well the redbacks. There's a lot of references early on to like things that they sort of know are real and are around, uh, like like the red building in the case of the falling stars and the redbacks and the and the sun which gets turned on and off yeah. and so when you finally go out to the desert in the end when you start hearing about all of the other uh things you you're familiar with the real weirdness already so when you hear about the city of iron heads the bloody waterfall the legend of the crystal palace the talking wolves the 13 days the shimmering the kindest and the simplest some some kind of a glimmer man i believe as well is out in the <laughs> desert Right before you die, you just see a glimmer of the glimmer man. Um, no, I like that it's you've been given weirdly tactile stuff. So when you go and like, what's a rumor and what's a myth and what's a fearful thing, when you get out into the desert, you've seen all of this other weird shit, like uh, the redbacks that's verifiable, you know? So you don't, um, you don't know what to take as real and what's not real. And it's easy to get you into the mindset of like you mentioned Agaray, John, like that mindset of what was it like to be a conquistador? What was it like to come to America and be like, oh shit, we're out of water. We're all gonna die of dysentery. You know, like we better but we better find this time, fucking like golden city. City full of gold. It seems like perfectly plausible. It's like, I've seen enough crazy shit. Like why not this? Why not also yeah. this? People yeah. with yeah. tattoos and bones through their noses, you know, like abandoned civilizations and, and burial plots here, you know, like all kinds of crazy stuff. It does have that feel of like, you're being told by, by, by the indigenous people that like there's a sun god and then you're you know given you know whatever it is corn or whatever the fucking thing that you're like oh this is this crazy shit you see a dodo bird you know what i mean like you see some crazy thing that's never existed to you before that's that's really wild to to you in some way and Baboon I, raids are a thing 
Well, exactly. Just new kinds of animals, new kinds of trash and organization of civilization and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then the third section of the book uh, is he works as a newspaper editor. He's now Kinsey, the sort of um, the Japanese moralist who's angry at him for getting Wang, who's their friend, out of punishment, right? Wang, for not changing jobs, is going to be sent to work out with Yuri, out near the redback alligators, which is like a punishment nobody wants. And Wang's like, oh, it's fine. I'll do it for six months and then come back and be a caretaker again. And then they'll find me at some point and send me again. It's it's all good. Don't worry about it. And so Andre's like, no, no, no. You pull some strings as the police to get you out of this. He tells their other friend Kensei, thinking uh, that Kensei's going to be like, great. Thanks for saving our friend. Instead, Kensei says to him, Duralex Sedlex, like it is the law. It is harsh, but it is the law right? Which is what that translates to and is sort of a moralist. So now Andre is appointed in a job switch. He's now the editor of the newspaper. He's sort of working with Kensei. And when we're introduced to them, because it jumps forward in time, like six months at this time, between each section, it jumps around between months and years on things. They're in the middle of the Egyptian darkness, which is the sun hasn't turned on for 12 days, right? There's no grain. Everybody's convinced the mayor is hoarding the grain somewhere. The farmers have invaded the city, uh, at sort of, and no one knows what they're doing there. Um, and there's a censor who doesn't want the newspaper to publish any of the negative letters being sent to them and sort of wants them to toe the line, even though they're oppositional in some He's ways. like, well, we're only, we're only going to be able to print one letter. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and he um, uh, has sort of come back to reality. He's been affected by the Red Building experience where he goes in and is sort of playing chess with the lives of his friends who are real people on the chessboard who appear to die in real life when they're uh, taken off the chessboard. He's relieved to find out they're not actually dead in real life when he gets out of the Red Building. Um, and so then you have, when he's going to see the mayor, right, this police uh the 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 farmers right breaks out there's a revolution people are being slaughtered in the street um and fritz the former nazi who is the former police officer with him who is now leading his own newspaper sort of takes command of the of the farmers right and sort of declares himself in charge of it and as he's giving this rousing speech about how fuck the experiment. We're going to do our own things. We're going to run this world the way it's meant to be run. We're going to run it right. The sun comes back on, which feels like very much a reference to what you're talking about, Martin, with Pharaoh, where the eclipse happens just by pure fortuity in this chance. He's sort of like credited yeah. with uh, with saving civilization in that, in that moment. I mean, you, and you find out after that, like the, the sun going off for so long was basically just a, a mistake. An that's what the mentors <laughs> say. Yeah, the mentors yeah. are like, we are fucking up the experiment. He, Andre essentially gets told shortly after this, the experiment has has run out of control. Uh, what's the exact phrase they say? Um, just that the the experiment, it's it's some phrase that's like the, the experiment uh, has run out of control. That's what it is. So the mentor says that the experiment has run out of control, right? And it's sort of admitted, we don't really know what we're doing anymore. The light went off accidentally, like, sorry guys, you know, kind of thing. 
Um, and he's as he's there at the newspaper editor, they have like a Strugatsky-esque moment with the book where the Strugatskys in 1974 realized that they were going to be investigated and somebody might pop into their house at any moment to see what was on their bookshelves and potentially arrest them. So they made three handwritten copies of the book and sort of sent it away to other people and destroyed the original manuscript so that it wouldn't be found in their house as something they had written where they're burning everything that has been written to the newspaper, every article they've written, everybody sort of gets together. And Fritz Heiger, the Nazi, uh, has taken over very quickly and declared himself in charge, sends a, the adjutor, the sort of secret police guy, to come with a letter offering Andre to be in charge of some cultural ministry and the permanent leader of the paper. And like a fight breaks out between Kinsey and 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 this adjutor and everybody. and. Uh, Kinsey gets shot dead. This is after Donald Cooper kills himself at the beginning of the of the first section, where sort of you have people running into to death, uh, basically, um, towards the end of each section. They sort of each end with a kind of significant violence in that way. The the investigation section just ends with so Isaiah. Like Suicidist protest. Um, yeah. And then that kind of gets covered up a little bit when they're like, uh, just say it was an accident. Say somebody yeah. blew themselves up. And- <laughs> Yeah. by Denny Lee of the killer. Yes. Yes. Um, Denny Lee and the and then the fourth section is he's a government agent. And this is sort of the lull section late in the book where the yeah, city is being run right. Andre's a big government now, big shot now. He sits around with the other fancy people living in a nice house. The garbage has been cleaned up. The city's being run correctly. Everybody's put towards um, this great secret construction project, which is highly under wraps, but everybody participates in, and it's not clear they're actually doing anything. And uh, this guy Everyone assumes it's an airship. Not yeah, to, they're talking about sending not, an airship down, not into to going the up into the air, but into the abyss, into the hole. Yeah. Just yeah. to see what's. Well, and then like, I think maybe it's Selma who who asked him about the airship, or somebody asked him, and he's just like, "Oh yeah, the airships. Yeah, they'll they'll go down in there." Sure. So Selma, we haven't mentioned Selma is his girlfriend. Fox Taylor. Yeah, she's a uh, she's a, a prostitute uh, from uh, I think Sweden. It, Sweden. from Sweden, uh, who shows up at the beginning of the book. There's a few people. Most people in the book early on are introduced as people who are offered a chance to participate in the experiment, who embrace that opportunity to be part of some grand unintelligible experiment brought to them by these extraterrestrial metaphysical beings. But then there's people like her that just seem to have done it and be trapped in it. You know, who who it's unclear why she agreed to do the experiment other than she maybe didn't have any other options. And they get together, but she's like, she's a, she's a slutty lady who's sleeping with everybody all the time. And um, they sort of have their devoted relationship. In this section, she becomes like the 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 counselor's wife, the minister's wife. There's he's one of twenty two ministers, or counselors, and they live like a fancy schmancy life. Um, and he's becomes such a politician. Like he sits around, he's banging his secretary. You know, he really doesn't do anything except hang around with his friends. Um, it's interesting that Katzman ends up being like Fritz's confidant, like his like yeah. right hand guy. But he's you know. A Jew, for one thing, you know, was yeah. hanging around with this Nazi. Um, but you kind of appreciated him in the previous section of in the editor where everyone is freaking out and burning all the papers and everything. And he's just sitting there like, what are you worried about? Like, 
you're you're paid you're, you're going to be accepted you're going to be embraced yeah, to this yeah, new society yeah. like, this is ridiculous for you to act like this well, he seems like, to be the one who always knows what's going on and, like it's in that the previous chapter there's that whole like after the uprising there's that section where andre uh, meets up with katzman and it's like they both been through the ringer and like yeah I don't know, there's he a really great katzman, kind of, like, dialogue between them when katzman goes into the red building uh, or Andre gets out of the red building. Katzman's there and is like, sure, I've been in the red building. And he has a file with him. And Andre's like, what's in the file? And Katzman essentially ha uh, is beat up by the secret police and yeah. gets his arm broken. His fingers no longer yeah. work sort of at the directions of Andre, who does it in a bit cowardly way. And the section you're talking about is it's one of the first times they've seen each other. And, and Katzman gives him a sort of like, no hard feelings, man. Like, yeah. <laughs> in a very Martin Kessler-esque exactly, way, like, when I shattered your arm. He's like, or uh, I think like Andre's eyes been hurt and he's like, ah, it still works. And then like, that's when Andre notices that like, hey, Katzman's arm doesn't work <laughs> at that point. It's like, ugh. Um, but he's, he's like, yeah, no hard feelings, basically. Also like in, I mean, the last, um, before they, they go out into the desert, that that last chapter, the um, Mr. Counselor, like it, it almost feels like the setup for the continuity disrupted where he's talking about like, hey, we should have this expedition. And then finally when it's granted, Andre's like, well, I didn't mean me go on this expedition. <laughs> I, I think like somebody else should go. He's like, first of all, I don't even want to. Second of all, he's like, you know, there's gotta be something better to do this. And he's trying to like weasel out of it after he's been like asking for this, yeah, this mission to, to go north into this desert and see if they can find the end of the world and the anti-city or whatever else to is reach out there. the zenith it's also yeah. a great joke that they call it uh, operation zigzag and then when <laughs> when everything goes absolutely to shit they come back and they find everyone slaughtered and uh he finds the um uh the diary like the expedition diary that the guy has been writing in his absence and it ends with what he literally describes as a zigzag because you know all hell breaks loose so he like yeah just scribbles and like that's the end of it like well and then I mean, Isaiah has, has his own suggestion for what what the name of the expedition should be. Is like Operation Doom and Gloom or something. It's like Merc. That. It's Merc and Gloom. Mer Merc and Gloom. Thank and you. And Fritz like, doesn't. No. And Fritz, no, Fritz doesn't say that's a bad idea. Fritz says that's too long. <laughs> that's too. That's, long. that's too long of a name for it. That's a great. So what happens in the Mister Counselor section is you have Danny Lee blows himself up. He puts on a dynamite vest and blows himself up in protest. Nobody's hurt. They pass it off as a. Uh, uh, construction explosives accidentally went off and Katzman, uh, Isaiah Katzman says, hey, this is what's going to happen. And he essentially predicts the 60s of like, you're going to have these sort of rich kid, ultra comfortable bourgeois people start get involved in revolution towards unclear or incoherent ends because things are too good. So this is the way civilization is. You can either have food riots or you can have uh, luxury riots. These are like the only two two ways that a society can function is once it gets smoothly, it'll it'll do that. And Fritz and Andre are sort of like, what do you want us to do? Like create fake shortages? And Katzman's like, what I like about Katzman is he engages in no solutionism. A lot of the characters and humans in in general engage in if there's a problem, there's a solution to it. Katzman is very inclined to never offer solutions to problems. He's not somebody that sees every problem as inherently having a solution. He's somebody who sort of has an interest in knowledge for knowledge's sake. He has an interest in living for living's sake. He doesn't necessarily think there's all these sets of societal problems that have solutions to them, which is when you present other people in charge with the problems, they think they're solutions. Like the red building 
is a problem without a solution. It's a metaphysical riddle and that's Katzman's relationship to it. And Andre's like, yeah, but I have to solve the case. Like get what's in your fucking file. I need to solve the case. Katzman's like, my files, interesting stuff about the red building. It's not going to help you solve the case. Right? So there's this big dinner scene uh, that's just Fritz, Katzman and Andre having lunch together. Uh, where the proposal for the expedition to the desert is laid out. And it's essentially Isaiah has been going out into the desert really without permission and um, looking around and sort of poking around out there and has a pretty good idea of what's far to the north and they want to go further. And uh, Andre wants to do it because he wants to figure out the nature of the sun, right? And what their relationship to the sun is, this light that's turning on and off. And if there's a curvature to the world and basic, you know, sort of let's go to the new world ideas about it. Isaiah just wants to go explore. And Fritz has heard legends of the anti-city, which is this city that's exactly like theirs, but the opposite. You know, it's Bizarro City, where if it's doing well, this city's doing bad. Uh, if this city's peaceful when they're aggressive and vice versa. So he's worried that since things are going well here and they're staying to themselves, this other city, things are going bad and they're going to be expansionistic. And there's constantly ideas thrown out like what's at the top of the wall? Well, the case of the falling stars is it's presumed there's a big city up there like ours that's throwing people over the edge and trash over the edge the way we throw stuff down into our void on the other side. And potentially there's a city down there that they're throwing trash into, right? There's sort of this idea of there's evidence of these other civilizations. What do they mean? And there's been this legend of the anti-city floating around that he buys into. And it's one of those things that like the zone and roadside picnic where you're told there's this orb in the middle of it, where the weird things you're witnessing, it's both, well, that sounds like some made up bullshit that's not real, but it also sounds within the parameters of the crazy stuff that the book has already established. So this is when they come up with the idea of this of this um, investigation party uh, with like- We should, should mention though, Katzman, yes, he's just going to hang out, but also he's voracious uh, for, for archives. He wants to, yeah. yeah, he wants to find things to read. Basically, that's the only way out of the boredom for him is to like discover you know things on paper that he can absorb yeah and that also he's been the only one who's been consistently able to locate water out in the deserts and waterless areas that yeah, the geologists the kind of an issue like it, you find out that the city it's being developed like into the south where they have this like swampland because they're having water issues right yeah that the city's creeping south because yeah, they're running out of water yeah and uh and it's interesting when uh, at the end of the Mr. Counselor section, right before they're supposed to go into the desert, everything's very orderly. Life seems very good. It seems like an apex of stuff. And when um, when Andreas come out of the red building and he asked Katzman, what the fuck is that place? Katzman says, it's the delirium of an agitated conscience and, conscience and sort of laughs at him. And at the end of the section, in the fourth section, you know, uh, uh, Andre says to himself, I haven't seen my mentor in a long time. He actually sees him outside and sees the red building outside when there's a party. It's in his garden in his big fancy mansion. He's like, I'll go into the red building. And he goes in and it's empty. There's just rats. There's nothing in there. And he comes out and Katzman's there again, seeing him coming out of the building. He says the delirium of an agitated conscience, conscience is all over, Right. And I think that that's really interesting. And you do feel like that. The lull of this section, you do feel like, okay, it's all over. Like they're in, they're in a good place, you know? And it, it gives you a funny feeling 
not of don't leave and go into the desert. Like you got everything right here. It gives you a strange feeling like, of course now is the time to go into the desert. And that's a very strange and I think perceptive part of their sense of civilization is that when things are going well for a civilization, they there's like, well, let's just go further. There's no chance things are gonna go bad for us, you know? Which leads into the final section which my favorite part of that section is where he has his big speech to the statues, right? He finds statues of all the... The city of a thousand statues right? is, is finds, what Pack would call it. <laughs> he finds statues of all like past leaders and everything, past politicians, and all by himself gives this big, very passionate speech about what he, uh, what he sees as what he calls amorphous neopecoskankness. <laughs> In other words, <laughs> the chaos of individual creativity and freedom, right? The social entropy, which he thinks he's tasked with balancing, you know, sort of like his most sort of communist idea, I think is that, you know, uh, and again, the kind of God versus devil argument that he makes, which is that God would be happy just to let everyone run free and do whatever they want, which is bullshit. You know, you need someone to, to you need a devil, a conqueror, someone who can take that and organize it and focus it in a way to arrange it into chorus order, organize it, institutionalize it, neatly line it up at a single point, generally clamp down on it. And that kind of becomes his like philosophy towards the end of the book, right before he kind of ends up on his own is that, you know, someone has to take responsibility for, uh, for the people because they can't, you know, take care of themselves, which I think is funny when you mention the sixties and the kind of uh, earlier um, prediction of how the sixties would go when specifically the idea is like, these people can change things through their terrible, terrible art, you know, and like their, <laughs> their awful ideas of like what, you know, is supposed yeah. to be freedom. Uh, and uh, I think that kind of leads ultimately I've, to the, I've invented the a machine to measure your organs. Sorry, <laughs> exactly. Well, no, but that, that becomes a huge thing towards the end yeah. in the conclusion where they talk about this temple based on you know artists and writing and things like that. That's supposed to be like the one redeeming thing that you know when they, when no ideology works, this you know this temple of art artist is what can save us. You know, but it kind, of, kind of seems like this kind of fool's image of like you know the one thing that can save anyone is just creativity and like chaos i mean that's actually there's also like a lot of ruminating on the nature of power and like yeah you know well i you know the guy's probably never read 10 good books in his life he's like also like i don't really have it in me to shoot something <laughs> so a bit like yeah. back and forth about like the right to power versus like well maybe power is just like whoever has the power and uh, I mean, that, that's also like a big part of what you're talking about too, I think. Well, it should also be mentioned, the speech you're mentioning, John, you're not describing it exactly right, which is that he finds himself, they find a pantheon, right? Which where there's all these pedestals that used to have statues standing on them. And this is a big worry because they've realized they're in a city that's full of living statues that are creating chaos and killing people, right? So seeing all the pedestals, he's like, oh shit, this is no good. Whereas Pack, who we'll explain in a little bit because he requires some backstory, and Katzman are like, this is awesome. Look what all of these things say on him. Like, let's read the inscriptions. And he doesn't want to be out there. He's afraid of it. So he goes with this mute that they have. In the desert, there's these ran, roaming bands of people from even farther north that all have their tongues cut out. And one of them has sort of befriended him. Uh, sort of a, you know, my man Friday kind of thing from Robinson Crusoe almost, right? And him around even to go to the bathroom. Yeah. And they go into the pantheon itself that all of these 
you know, hundreds of thousands of placards, uh, empty pedestals are out front of, and they go into the Pantheon itself. And he finds a huge table lined with uh, iron sculptures of heads as though these are heads are sitting at the table. And he starts talking and at the far end of the other table is someone he can't see who he thinks is Katzman and realizes it isn't responding to him and talking back to him. And the book slips in and out of which side of the table he's on and you realize that somehow his internal monologue is all the way at the other end of this table. Uh, and yeah, but what, it's him. Wait, wait, it is him. It's him. But yeah. I like the funny part of the monologue is that when he first starts speaking, he's startled because when he looks down, a bunch of the iron heads have turned to look at him and are giving him his attention, like rapt attention. And he goes on and there's like several pages of him going on and he looks down again and he realizes they've all looked away and are Turned looking away. at the other end of the table, like <laughs> bored, yeah. you know? And I think there's a measure of self-satire to this, to this section, because what you're talking about, Martin, is exactly right. He's talking about the nature of power and the nature of creativity, but he's also, this section is really the most terrifying section to me because it's about the nature of existence and ideological exhaustion. Like why exist? This section is essentially like addressing the suicide question head on of like, why is it better to be alive than not alive, right? And to me, the, the that's always like that, you know, the brother Theodore joke of, you know, it's better to have never been born at all, but who's that lucky, right? You know, mm -hmm. uh, like once you're alive, the, the idea of non-existence is an entirely different question, you know, than having never existed, you know, and that's Not what this one is. in a hundred million people. <laughs> but, um, but that section I find sort of, sort of terrifying. I think that in literature, especially sci-fi literature, I find that question terrifying because it's removed from human existence to the only, because the only answer to that question is that we know it's better to be alive because we all feel it. And if you force rationality on it, this is why I find the surrealist philosophy so compelling is that irrationality is clearly more powerful, convincing and coherent than rationality clearly more powerful coherent and and uh, intelligible than rationality in a funny way that's that's a very perverse um uh ironic statement i've just made uh but i think it's true and i think only when you create a hermetically crafted fake narrative does rationality feel more powerful than the simple nature of existence? You know what I mean? So it's the only time I feel really backed into a corner are like these fake visions of hell. You know what I mean? That I feel like I can't argue with that because you can't because it's not reality. You know, if you simply place something in reality, you go, the existence question is solved by Wang, right? That you just exist and you'll be fine. You know, that's why you exist is to just yeah, e exist. The conclusion and is sort of like, yeah. Well, like, I don't want to die. Like, maybe yeah. I'm better off dead, but I, I don't want to. Like, that's sort of the conclusion. I was wondering what you guys think. There's a section towards the end when, like, he's having that kind of uh, conversation with the mentor, and the mentor's just agreeing with him the whole time, and it kind of just makes it worse for him. It kind of slowly devolves to that over the book, right? Where it's like yeah. the mentor's not really giving him, not really mentoring him at all. He's just kind of, like, he's... telling him what he wants to hear, more or less. Well, like, uh -huh, hey, you got nice. this. Don't worry like... about it. <laughs> <laughs> sure, that's reasonable, and it's just like no, like don't agree with water. Me. Wait, 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 water. wait, wait. I'm changing my aperitif pairing. I think I've already picked this for another novel, though. I'm changing it. That stuff all reminds me of the Confidence Man, the Herman Melville book, where you have an ever-changing character who's probably the devil, 
showing up. It, the whole idea is he's supposed to be unable to differentiate in this character, the confidence man, between if he's angelic or demonic in nature. And he proposes sort of moral quandaries to everybody he comes across in these different forms that are irresolvable moral quandaries in which is the demonic action or the angelic action, the good or evil, very impossible to differentiate, right? That that's the entire idea of the book. And in fact, the only character who has no patience for him is the Missourian, who's a very uh, Uncle Yuri type character. He's like a salt of the earth farmer. And all he does is punch the fucking confidence man in the stomach and walk away without having a conversation. And you can see Yuri <laughs> doing that too. Like, oh yeah, that's your big question, bang fuck off because i think yuri has a similar like i'm a family man now i'm not going out into the desert i can't leave my sons behind and you get a sense of like holistic completion to him that you don't in the other characters not that he's the most happy or healthy or uh, you know character that there is but you say he's figured out existence in a very clear way and i think that that reminds me of the Missouri and the confidence man but the mentors are very much confidence man figures where you go at first oh are they aliens who've slipped people out of time are they people from the future who are trying to solve an impending sort of ecological doom that hits the world by reproducing it inside of a inside of a terrarium you know like let's give them the conditions that destroy the world eventually you know in sort of a um la jete 12 monkeys ish kind of way or are they demonic forces you know uh or are they you know godly forces sort of guiding angel characters trying to get people through a circle of hell you know and i think that the agreeing with him makes them feel most demonic in nature because the only person who's going to agree with you about all things is somebody who has no solutions for you and nothing to offer you you know who's only going to drive you like <laughs> i mean it, like it, it almost turns into like him having a dialogue with himself or something like that and that's like the terrifying thing it's that like maybe there's no answer maybe the mentor has nothing to answer it's just like agreeing with you and you don't have the answers and you know that that means that like if you're trying to find some kind of meaning or purpose then you're at a dead end like if you know you go all the way to the end of the world and you just run into a mirror that's, that's yes. kind of not, not which is also very the prisoner i'll just throw out yeah there. but i, mean, I would also like i would also say like that doppelganger kind yeah. of moment also in this and like to me that that was sort of that feeling is like you you run to the end of the world searching for meaning and it's like Oh, it's it's just me, and <laughs> like, or it's it's just a reflection of me, and or an echo of me, and uh, you know, that's that's kind of scary in a way. Yes, no, it's terrifying, but again, <laughs> it's only ter terrifying in the context of artificial novelistic work. Sure. In reality, that doesn't bother me. Like, all we have <laughs> is ourselves in reality, but that's also not true. I've got my son right here in the other room. I've got you guys on this thing. You're real breathing human beings. We're, we're not actually alone in the universe. We don't actually die alone. Yeah. You know, uh, that's not actually what it is. Everything is not a, sim a simulation and a reflection of us. Everything is not shadows on a cave wall. It's not. There's people creating those shadows. That's actually the reality of it. And you only see that you feel that much more tangibly when you're trapped in a novel in which everything is fake, fake and a simulacrum. I can't say the word simulacrum. Simulacrum. Sure. I mean, it's also more interesting than like, oh, what's beyond the edge of infinity? 
oh, like a second psychedelic light show. That's that's not yeah. great either. So you yeah. know, be between the two, I, maybe I'll take the reflection. But yeah, uh, you know, it, it's interesting how like science fiction stories Space ones baby. try to address that, like what what's beyond our the limits of our understanding. You know, and yeah, I mean, like I always think like one of my favorite quotes about science fiction. Um, it's. I think it's, well, it's from the Tarkovsky Solaris. I, I forget if it's in the book as well, but it's this idea that like, uh, you know, humanity, like looking on at other planets, like, you know, you don't need a spaceship, you need a mirror. And it's to force that kind of self-reflection, look at like where we are on this planet. And, you know, the, this idea that like the answers to our search for meaning or our search for understanding are like out there somewhere, either physically or uh metaphysically or whatever it's like well you know maybe not maybe we need to like reflect and look at our own limitations and try to that's so funny mark you're almost saying the exact way, same but... thing you're almost saying the exact same thing i i i did when we talked about this little thing star trek 5 on a recent <laughs> I, I could have gone with star trek right. 5 instead of solaris that's, that's always an option yeah well i was i was thinking specifically about the ray bradbury short story the man which is about you know chasing after a jesus figure who goes from one planet to another and one person who's content to just stay on the planet where he's had his message and he's touched the people of that world and he's content and he knows that this is where he will find holistic completion yeah. on this planet while the other one wants to keep going and going and going even though he knows he'll never actually meet him he'll never actually find him but he just wants to keep exploring and searching going out yeah. there and just i mean completely the search is the, the best the part when you time. actually find something it sucks usually like i mean another <laughs> star true. trek example like I, I always really like star trek the motion picture about this like sort of godly entity that's like searching for its origin its meaning it's god it's creator and it finds that like oh wait i, I was created by like shitty humans this yeah. sucks like you know that's it's kind of about you know exploration in that way and that like you know some of the answers we we find out there might actually be disappointing it's sort of a reality yeah, of, of course of, well, it's, of discovery you know one of the things i like about this book too it reminded me of we talk about this on our episode on the ashtray errol morris's book right about the philosophy professor who wanted to murder him through a heavy ashtray at his head it's a great Great, uh, great episode by far our least popular by like a fucking mile. You should listen to it. Um, and uh, but in that book, one of the people he talk ends up talking to is Noam Chomsky, and Noam Chomsky talks about something that I've always thought about. Uh, that I was very like it was one of those things where it's like I have to stop talking about this because Noam Chomsky is like on the record saying it. But at the same time, I had the exact same thought as Noam Chomsky. That's got to be nice because at one more point, uh, Noam Chomsky says to him. Well, clearly we're going to run into things we can't understand as humans. And Errol Morse says, why? We've been able to understand every single thing we've ever put human intelligence towards. What do you mean we're gonna run into things we don't understand? And Noam Chomsky goes, well, it's you can be the world's smartest dog, but how smart is the world's smartest dog compared to the world's dumbest dog, right? Like there's a limit to understanding for beings. And Errol Morse says, of course, like human brains are nothing like dogs' brains. You know, much like uh, much like Andre Bouton complaining about lemon linen, a dog doesn't have a human's look. A dog has a dog's look. You're an idiot, linen, <laughs> right? Or Trotsky, it's Trotsky, it's Trotsky. Trotsky yeah. A dog doesn't have a dog's look. It doesn't have a human's look. A dog has a dog's look. Complaining to Boonwell about how dumb Trotsky was, but um, but I think it's the same thing. Where this book is sort of an exploration of the idea of like, you will certainly within your own lifetime 
hit a limit to understanding. There will be an infinitely high yellow wall and you won't know what's on top of it. Now, how do you go on living with that? Does that decrease your meaning of your existence and decrease your understanding of the world? Does it matter that you don't know what's on top of the, the wall? Does it matter you can't uh, solve the case of the, of the crashing stars? You know, does it, is a dog's existence meaningless because a dog doesn't understand what's outside of the room you know that a dog can't look up much like a character in elden ring you can't look up like a dog um does it matter <laughs> does that matter to a dog's life it seems absurd when you put it in that context a dog's life is of self-evident value a dog's life is of, of self-evident uh moral and emotional value and i think humans have a hard time placing the value of their lives in a context without ultimate answers to everything. And I think that that doesn't mean you should stop looking to be the people I like most in the book. And I think you're supposed to like most are Pac and Isaiah, who are the ones who are most interested in learning and most overwhelmed and in love with the beauty of it. They still get excited for the beauty sure. of things, you know? And I think that that's, that's important. And then Yuri and, and Wang, who are the two people who have sort of discovered that just living is fine. You know, I think that these are sort of the people who are most ideologically empty in the book are the ones that have have uh, found the most um, the most comfort. And I wonder if the Strugatskys put that in as a consolation to themselves because they are Andre and they need to say just reminding themselves just because we chased after this false ideology. You know, Melan Kundera talks about in uh and I think Book of Laughter and Forgetting that he wants to write a, a, a novel. He's always thought about writing a novel about how the people who caused communism to come to power were him, were people yeah. like him, right? That the intellectuals who got destroyed by it and the people who got most destroyed by it were the people who were like, this is going to be great. And he wants to write a book about people trying to stop it from happening called In Pursuit of an Errant Act. Right. And I think that this book has a little bit of the flavor of it's the Strugatskys. They could call it in pursuit of an errant act. You know, the experiment is the errant act and they're in pursuit of it. And I think it has that broader ideological. It's not specifically about communism, but it has that similar like, well, we fucked up. We, the yep. Strugatskys who were communist true believers, we fucked up and we ruined everybody's life. What do we do about it now? You know, how do you go on living when you realize you fucked everything up, you know, and and there's nothing left to believe in what we believed in required us to stop believing in other things because we were true believers. We did indeed stop believing in other things. So now that that value system has collapsed, we're left with nothing. We believed in nothing but what the state told us to believe it in. Now that that's collapsed, we've got nothing. How do you go on? Is what this book is I about. Think about because this because I because I think because I want to keep that in my head for my for my dessert. Yeah, I just want to ask uh, Martin. Like, do you want to sum up your thoughts on the book at this point, and then we'll get into our desserts to uh, wrap up the episode? I, I mean, just to add what you're saying, Chris. Like, I always think about this because, like, I don't feel like a, a particularly smart person, and then I see people who are, you know, either historically or even contemporary people. I I feel like I know who are smarter than me who like deeply deeply believe in these ideologies and that they fail and it's like <laughs> what hope is there for me i don't know but um 
I, well, I it's think also like being it, on Twitter yeah. teaches you the people you thought were really, really smart are actually as fucking moronic as any of us. That's what, <laughs> no, but for real, but totally for real, you read, you're like, that person's brilliant. And then you read eight tweets by him and they're like, they're a fucking halfwit, just like me. You know what I mean? Not even I'm smarter than them, but yeah. their head is full of stupid ideas all fucking day long, like anybody. They're, this person that's supposedly brilliant, their head is full of stupid fucking ideas. You know? I mean, final final thought in the book, I'd say that, uh, you know what, I'll say that astronomers talk about how maybe at the end of time, if there's this like heat death universe, long after every star is dead, long after even the, the last like neutron stars died, even the black holes will fade away. So like, you know, don't don't sweat the big stuff. <laughs> maybe yeah. it's, it's how, how to think about it. So that's uh that, that's kind of how I'm, I'm feeling after reading it it's like i i, I don't know you, you talked about like maybe it's a downer i i didn't really feel like that at, at the very end it's like you know yeah there's more to come but you're sort of this link in a chain or maybe you've gone through the first gate and there's a infinite number of gates on, on the way to enlightenment or whatever but it's like uh, no uh, he's, it's, he <laughs> says he's gone through the first ring of hell this be at yeah, the end yeah. of this book we should say is they find people from the anti-city who are their doppelgangers and he goes to shoot one of them and he shoots himself sure. and dies what, what's... and he does it. It was all a dream. And yeah, right yeah. as he's waking up from, it was all a dream. The mentor the says, mentor to him, says that was you the first passed... ring of hell. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's it. You've just but... passed through the first ring. It might be a gate to enlightenment though. I think through you pass through your first challenge, but to me, that's really fucking upsetting. The idea that, you know, sure that hell hell is real i just hate the idea of hell is like a real place <laughs> i always think uh hell's for children well what, what what i think about would be great is if you die and it's like oh shit the egyptians religion was right i went to egyptian hell or something like that like oh god damn it <laughs> somebody else had the right religion the whole time we're going to some, egyptian hell. some alien religion that you've yeah, never fucking yeah. heard of and they're like you didn't wait, believe wait, in glagnor coins to cross the river wait what why <laughs> <laughs> is this guy with the bird head telling me to like pass into the, the gate of the afterlife i don't know what to do no that's how i always think about that with suicide though and this book doesn't even because this book is very much trying to address the suicide question though of why is uh, existence preferable to non-existence and i always think like man people who commit suicide are way more confident about non-existence after death than i am like to kill yourself you have to be very confident that it is going to relieve you of your consciousness and i have no confidence about that <laughs> whatsoever and the idea of consciousness existing in a void is obviously more terrifying than oh, being that, that's alive. More, I mean, like the, the idea that you stop existing is is bearable because it's like, well, I it's don't exist. Great. I don't care. It gives life meaning. <laughs> but, it makes you enjoy but, your life. You know, it's like, yeah. well, you know, I, I didn't exist before I was born. I won't exist when I'm gone. That that's like very kind of comforting beautiful. thought, actually. But it's the, the idea that you like again. <laughs> blow your head off and it's like oh shit osiris is here and i'm going to egyptian hell is, is a bad idea no the boon <laughs> the boon well talks about if what if you die you're just floating in the void forever yeah postmodern well, hell and it's like that's the absolute worst that, that's the postmodern. i don't hell. want that infinity i do, want, I do in, not uh, want that yeah. or or this or the stephen king version of hell which is that you're a slave to a bunch of ant creatures that will just be whipping you all day <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that just becomes your life. I feel like the concept of hell doesn't make sense because people have an ability to transform what this book is saying, whatever world they're in to the yeah. real world, you know, that you have an ability to transform it 
into reality. That if my consciousness and my existence in any way resembles reality, neither heaven nor hell is possible. You know, I mean, that it will just become this at, world uh, again. And history when you're like, like how did, you know, you look at certain events or certain periods of time when it's like, how did people live through that? Like, how did they live through the, the black death and smallpox? And it's like, oh, right, we're living in like, COVID now, people in a hundred years will be like, how did they live through that? You know, yeah. so like stuff becomes tolerable. How did they live like, through school shootings and the threat of nuclear war and environmental catastrophe? It's <laughs> like, it was fun. It was fucking, I had a really good time my entire goddamn life. Every single, I met beautiful women. I had great food. I hung out with my son. The Eagles won a Super Bowl. You know, like I loved every minute of this accursed, you know, you know, 21st century. Like, That's just you, you a fact. To like Futurama exists. Peasant who's like the, the probably like the worst time to be alive in like what, what you know most of human history. And it's like, no, what are you talking about? Things are great. Like I go to church on Sunday. There's like awesome light that comes through the stained glass. I get here like it's awesome. They just invented. A, they just invented a new type of grain. <laughs> like there's there's a new I, type I, of grain. You know, but. But like, uh, you know, kind of bringing back to Ferran, like I, I do think about like what it's like to maybe live in in a time and a place where it's like the, the best days of that that culture, that civilization are kind of behind you. You know, like what, what was it like to be a medieval peasant in the in Rome after the Roman Empire collapsed? Like, do, do you look at the past and realize that like, you know, things were better than, you know, yeah. I sort of wonder like, wait, did, did we already like reach our apex as a, as a civilization? Is it all downhill from here? I don't know. But uh, I, I don't but know. Like, the, I mean, there's so the many thing. ideas you can explore in this. That's this another book, thing but... Milan Kundera talks about where he says after communism ended, everybody was like those dark years, those horrible years and those lost years. And he's like, what are you talking about? We made jokes about the censors. We've, you know, made smutty cartoons, making fun of them. We had our secret newspapers and our little clubs. Like we did part, there was plenty, it wasn't lost. We lived our lives still under shitty conditions. You know, those years weren't lost. It was just, it was bad and it sucked, but like we still did our thing, you know? And I think that's, that's sort of what, the idea. That's sort of the philosophy of the temple, isn't it? The idea that you can build this thing that, you know, no matter what the situation is, like, you know, you'll be saved by just the things that you create, the chaos that you well, create. Well, I mean, like, you know from a meta point like the temple in the book you could say is is the book the doom city that the Strugatsky brothers wrote this like temple for themselves right in private but like i thought it was interesting watching this interview with uh, boris Strugatsky, where he talks about like at a certain point you realize like the a writer he's not somebody who writes a reader a writer is somebody Something who's read, read that you know, hurts. And it's, it's that like... hurts to hear as a writer <laughs> yeah i was like whoa <laughs> when he said that and like I, I think eventually came to the conclusion that it's like on some level the doomed city if if it is this like temple that's just to ourselves and it's like in isolation on some level it doesn't exist like you need the book needs to be read in some way otherwise it's the tree falling in the forest but does it make a sound or not? I, you know, it's, it's kind of like that, but I, you know, well, and, and like, I'm, I'm glad you know. can read this book now. Is my conclusion. <laughs> sure, you know? yeah. Glad that it got Did published. You, wonder, like, get, you know, like, Oh, I'm sorry. You know. I know you gave me that book to keep. I kind of misplaced it guys. I, sorry I mean, about that. I'm sure that there are great novels that have never been read. There's great symphonies that nobody's 
that have never been performed and heard, you know, like uh, I don't know. Stuff exists, I, don't, so I don't know. I'm not much of it. That's what I, when we first went to the Toronto Film Festival, right? I was like, this is my first film festival ever. There's going to be, there's going to be all of these fantastic fucking movies that never get released and nobody's ever heard of. And I'm going to see all of these films that like only live a festival life that are just too interesting to be distributed, right? Well, and mo movies realize, might be a different story, but <laughs> well, you realize there's not. Like if a movie's even halfway interesting, you have fucking heard of it. You know, like it's really in anything that gets that's not, covered. You know, that's not entirely true. <laughs> <laughs> Has anybody I, seen the, the empty, uh, oh, the empty box? The empty yes. box. No, empty it's box. just, it's just very rare. It's very rare uh, sure. for sure. that. But, you know, it, there's, there's every, every once in a while though, like, you know, the, I mean, the, did you ever see that film with, um, it's like Daniel Brule where he, like he finds this novel in the, in a desk that he buys used and he it's like a fantastic novel and he takes credit for it and they're like wow Daniel Bruce such a young cast as Otto reading this book instead. <laughs> yeah. I, well also like before I forget you know when you mentioned confidence man the last time you brought that up it's when we were talking about uh, Berlin Alexanderplatz which I, I was thinking about like quite a bit while while reading the Doom right, City so, well it's... don't get to it I'll spoil it Berlin Alexanderplatz yeah, is yeah. my dessert pick I, but, I, <laughs> I, I figured it was going to be so yeah I picked something else but it was like uh, I, I I don't know. Like that that's going to be a really interesting pairing. Well, I mean, that we could jump that, into that. Yeah, but. yeah. Let's jump into it because I actually, yeah, my dessert pair. I'm going to go ahead and go because but I wait, picked. But a, wait, before yeah. we get into it, you're saying that Daniel Brule taking credit for the novel. Oh yeah, that, where it's like <laughs> he he finds this novel that that it's like brilliant and like and not not just brilliant, but like people are like shocked that like, wow, that came from you. And like, he, he turns into this sensation and then like the author shows up who lost this book or, <laughs> or um, I don't know, like you do hear about like- The real, uh, the, author the who, Red who, Rock who, like, West, their... the real uh, Sam. What's <laughs> or... the character's name, John? The real Sam from Las Vegas? What's the I, character? I was gonna say, it's a real, like you gotta do the more Morvan Caller thing. You gotta wait for the guy to die before you claim the book for yourself. That actually, uh... that reminds me of a short story I wrote, which I couldn't get published. So I guess it's not actually written according to the Strugatskys, but it's about a guy. <laughs> it's a guy, a friend of a person he knows like in his office, like is like, oh, you should read this book. You, it'll change your life. And he reads it and he's like, oh my God, like I did just have my life changed by this book. I'm affected by deeply this. I'm not the same person anymore. And he goes to the guy in his office and he's like, this book changed my life. And the guy's like, yeah. And he's like, no, for real, it totally changed my life. And the guy's like, I know, changed my life too. And he's like, but I can't keep on going, doing the same stuff. How do you keep coming off? This guy's like, what do you mean? He's like, no, it, it changed my life. And so it's like about the story of him trying to find someone who actually had their life changed by this book as well. And everyone's <laughs> like, oh yeah, it completely changed my life. Like down to the author who's like, the author's like, it completely changed my life. Like, how do you want? I won a bunch of awards. I get to go out and live in this fancy house now. He's like, yeah, but did it change your life? And the author's like, well, no, of course not. It's just a book. Anyway. I thought you were oh heading God, towards well, the Steven Seagal uh, anecdote <laughs> who wrote the screenplay. I did. <laughs> Stephen Tobolowski. No. Anecdote. Well, yeah. like, I, I don't know, just that, that made me think of like, I have a friend, she was like dating this this kind of schmuck of a guy. And then like, I just remember there was this one oh, time- Oh, that's where, like, not a nice thing to up, say about right. Marcus Penn. Sorry, go on. No, no, I, <laughs> it's not. Uh, but like, 
after they'd broken up, he was like trying to get back with her. And he's like, you don't understand. Like I read this thing and I completely changed as a person. I'm completely different. And like, it's a whole new me. And like, I remember just like, after we kind of like, he, you know, finally got to go our separate ways. She was like, I, well, I, I guess I shouldn't say his name, but she was like, same old guy. Like, that reminds <laughs> just me like every single time I guess he would do that, like, you know, There's... like, oh no, you have to take me back. I'm completely different. I'm changed. I'm a changed person. Can't you see? Like, That's... it was just this perpetual thing. On the on the there's the Mr. Show sketch where the guy they're separated for a week and she's like I've just and she's done everything she's like been skydiving and she you know learned how to paint and he hasn't changed at all right and uh, and Brian Posehn who wrote the sketch is on the commentary with uh, with uh, David Cross and Brian Posehn's like yeah this came out of a real thing where a girl and I broke up for like a couple weeks and when we got back together I had like completely changed. And David Cross goes, what, you went to a comic book convention and bought some more dolls? And it just feels like <laughs> so savage. Like, just like, you didn't fucking change. Uh, so I think that's probably what it is like for most people with that. Um, John Cribbs, dessert pairing? Okay, so... With my fur, with my aperitif, I you know I took the kind of fun aspect of this book, you know the kind of humor and the and and the adventure kind of aspect of it. And for my other one, I'm going to take another kind of microcosm type story, much like Berlin Alexander Platz, just to spoil your uh, your pick. And uh, only it's going to be the one that's kind of bred of misery and the kind of you know depression that you also find in this book. And that's uh, the Serpent's Egg by Ingmar Bergman. <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> Which, uh, speaking of, uh, right, you know, wanting to be a writer, wanting to be read, I did write an article about this for thepinksmoke.com. You should look it up and read it because it would be great to, uh, to be read as a writer. Um, but anyway, it's a great this, article. It's really this good. this mo this movie uh, is not considered one of his best. In fact, many consider it one of his worst. I love it. I think it's really good and has a lot of interesting ideas. And it was born of uh, a true story where Bergman, as a young man, went and saw Adolf Hitler talk when he was staying in Germany and was moved by it and thought he was great you know thought like this is the future of Germany this guy's going to be great and so that idea of you know being like a uh, a Kundera or a Strugatsky who you know is like feels this guilt over you know falling for this ideology which you know you agreed with at the time but then just you know completely was a crushing to think that you know you have ever had any kind of investment in this thing that became awful Bergman definitely has that guilt going into this movie, which is um, uh, set in the, we, we mentioned on the episode, the Weimar era of Germany, 1923 Berlin, uh, which is specifically, you know, everyone thinks of it as like a, an artistic surge, you know, in movies and art, and paintings and music in, in Germany at a time when like the, the regular people, the people of Berlin were miserable, you know, post-war, uh, post-World War One, and the economy was absolutely disgusting and horrible. And it's basically a garbage city, just like the one in the book that you know in the Doom City. Um, and like in Doom City, there's an experiment going on. You know, the Doctor Vergaris, the the all-purpose Bergman demon of rational thought and human misery. You know, is using the people in this uh, city as his guinea pigs and uh, drugging them to kind of see where this misery is going to lead. And of course, what it leads to is the rise of, of socialism, and very specifically the. Um, uh, he, he he mentions the Burger Brau Keller, the the fiasco, the Hitler's first you know staging in twenty three of the, um, the beer hall push that that is a failure, uh, and and knows that you know that like you know that's his turning point 
like if we're going to talk about Doom City, uh, his failed turning point. You know, he doesn't take over the government the way that Fritz does in Doom City. Um, but that you know that was just a first try, and then you know World War II is going to happen. He's going to rise to power anyway, and just these ideas of you know experimenting to like change the government and kind of bring in this new kind of way of thinking for a doomed people who have no other uh, will occasionally have no other think uh, uh, of no other government to turn to except the absolute worst one, the most destructive and uh, just um, the most damning one. I think it's something that this book is one of the many things that this book thinks about. So that would be my pick for my dessert. Uh, maybe don't watch it when you're in a good mood, but um, <laughs> you at least get a laugh out of the way that David Carradine runs, which is very foppish. I would say watch it with an open mind because its bad elements are so overtly brain damagedly <laughs> stupid that mm -hmm. like, if you just, of course, of course, of course there's bad stuff in it. But if you watch it and are like, I got over that, I'm not going to MST3K this, I'm going to watch it with an open mind, you'll be like, oh, this is actually a really interesting, like powerfully bizarre artwork, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and very science fiction-y too, for yeah. as, you know, set in historical events it is, it has a science fiction kind of element to it. Like, and like Doom City, it, uh, you know, opens with the despairing suicide of a character. So similar beats as well. Yeah. Uh, one more thing that we didn't talk about at all with Doom City is that it has uh, uh, something very in common with Hard to Be a God, which is um, a little bit in Serpent's Egg, which is what you're talking about. When your ideology lets you down, it's what happens when your leaders let you down? What happens when God lets you down? That's like the big Bergman question yeah. of like, when God fucks up and doesn't do it right, what's the next move you know like if it, if you if you fail at organizing society you know when it's proven how hard it is to be a god what's the next move for this guy who put the sun in the sky and it accidentally turned off you know it's like how do you what's your relationship to that creator what's your relationship to to the soviet ruling class that botched this shit all the hell you know like when you can't believe in them anymore and that's definitely i think uh, an easy reflection between bergman the bergman of through a glass darkly and uh it, definitely different than the bergman of virgin spring or seventh seal which i think is the tarkovsky area you know he's still in that mindset of like god is frustrating and mysterious and life is inherently full of contradictions but there's something coherent that i feel about the universe right um as mysterious as it can be it's, that the strugatskis don't have and i believed in god yeah, yeah. Exactly, which is where the Strugatskys are at. And why I think Roadside Picnic is, is better than Stalker, ultimately, is that's more where I'm at. Tarkovsky, the way they arrive at everything is going to be okay is entirely different, you know? And I'm much more in line with the with the Strugatskys I mean, vision of everything's going to be like, okay. Obviously, it's, it's heavy-hitting cinema, but I'm surprised that there hasn't been another version of Roadside Picnic made that's in some ways closer to the book. I mean, I don't know if anyone's just scared to go into that territory it's it's like remaking Solaris only like even more sacrosanct you know yeah I, I actually I know somebody worked on um there was going to be an English language TV adaptation of Roadside Picnic it was also sort of oh, heavily yeah? influenced by Stalker they shot the pilot apparently it was terrible and everyone moved on with their lives but they, they did try to make a like an English version of Stalker at one point one, one uh, thing I uh I also want to mention we've talked about Strugatsky's and Tarkovsky and Solaris 
before on the podcast several times. And every time we do it, I feel like I say something and I just did it. That makes it sound like I think the Strugatskys wrote Solaris and not Stanislaw Lim. And I want to be on the record that I know that Stanislaw Lim wrote Solaris. Anyway, (laughs) this happened before. I was editing an episode once and I was like, it sounds like I think the Strugatskys wrote Solaris. it, it always gets because like those are the two Tarkovsky sci-fi movies, but like yeah, I don't. I, well, I mean that's a whole thing. I'll, uh, I've got my my dessert if if you guys want to hear it. Oh, let me just do. I'm doing oh, Berlin sure. Alexander Platz yeah, like, real it. quick. We'll let you do it. We talked about it a little bit. Talked about Weimar era Germany, which is where Berlin Alexander Platz is set. It has a similar eternal, and I'm talking about the movie, not the book. Um, the 15 and a half hour Fassbender miniseries, it has a similar eternal gloom and trash feel to it that ends with a section that's pure phantasmagoria of like carnage, you know, and just charnel house imagery uh, that feels like both indebted to imagery of the Holocaust in World War II and entirely separate from it. It's got sort of angelic mentor-esque creatures in it in that final section. Uh, It's about crime and filth and living in a city in eternal darkness but more than anything selma the swedish uh prostitute in the in the book feels identical to barbara sukauer's performance in berlin alexanderplatz it's yeah. not just that she'd be great casting it feels like they sucked that character out of the movie and dropped it into their book and that's why it's my pick and all the other reasons we, we've we discussed. It's about a guy caught between morality systems, sort of floating along, unable to find a morality to which to adhere, and is ultimately failed by the morality of love and the organizing existence of love and human love, which I think is interestingly absent from this book, except that the two happiest motherfuckers in this book are Wang and Yuri, who are both loving parents. Right. And I think that that's sort of put to the side. At one point I was thinking, oh, there's no kids in this book. This is sort of like a children of men type thing. Is nobody able to have it? It's like, oh, wait, Wang has a child. Oh, and Yuri has kids now. Like, I think that the Strugatskys want to stay away from that question for whatever reason that they just don't even want to maybe. shocked at the end to find out Katzman has children. He's got daughters. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, that, just it's just a question he doesn't really want i think they don't want to try and pop that balloon either because they think an audience won't go along with it whatsoever or because they really believe in it you know it's it's hard to say but they sort of like put to the side okay if you can be a happy family man yes of course god's existence doesn't matter then but what if you're like me you know what i mean it has that sort of feeling I mean, to it. i mean there are stories that get into that and it does sort of turn into like what if the meaning of life is love and you know that's yeah. not such an embarrassing idea is it and yeah. you know the, the, like those those novels do exist that's, and i feel like it, of, it just didn't want to be that kind of novel you know but that's sort of how roadside picnic ends it builds yeah. to a very powerful just like want to be my dying family yeah my dying breath is to release this love bomb that redeems the world and i think it's very beautiful in that book and i think yeah. it's very very powerful in that book um, we we discussed Berlin Alexander Platz, by the way, uh, with Martin Kessler on Flixwise Canada. I remember that's right. Yeah. Preparing for that was that like was what a awesome. week. That, that was, it was crazy. Awesome. It, it felt like warfare for me. It was nuts. We watched them. We but didn't you? I because that week we went into it. I watched the miniseries. I watched the like twenty nine version of it, and I read the book like all in a week. And I just felt like 
my I'm Franz Bieberkopf now. That's the outcome of this. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm still really, really happy with that conversation. And anyone who's enjoying this conversation might want to go and check that out. Yes, it was uh, one of the most fun we had. Doing your show was consistently more fun than doing our own terrible radio program. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> it's true. Um, okay, so for my dessert... But, but, I, but, but that's only because we never have guests on as good as us. So when we're on other people's show, it's great because we're great. No, I'm kidding. Sorry, go on, Mark. You need to find the anti-podcast. I'll just get well, my tractor uh, fixed and we'll head up. <laughs> what did, hey, John, what did the farmer say when he lost his tractor? What? Where's my tractor? Okay, that's the joke. Go on. Um, well... Yeah, I, well, I think like Berlin Alexanderplatz was sort of the perfect dessert for the Tube City, but uh, I, I tried to think of something similar, and I, I came up with Dow Degeneration, which is one of the Dow movies by Ilya Krishnovsky, and it's sort of this notorious production where he created like a replica Soviet-era city and had people like live and wear costumes and be in character 24-7 and film it for like thousands and thousands of hours of footage and at a certain point, he's like, well, it's not going to be one film. It's going to be 12 films. Um, and I, I've seen two of them. And the one of them that came out uh, that I, I saw is Dow Degeneration, which is sort of like the, the conclusion or the capstone. And it's about this um, Soviet era kind of isolated science city. And it's, it's sort of based on real things that existed. And it, it sort of works in real figures like Lev Landau, where the film kind of gets its title from. And it's it's this idea to kind of create a perfect person in any of these different scientific and philosophical conversations and it sort of all degenerates and by the end it, it turns into complete like bedlam and you know people are getting murdered and it, it's like the whole kind of implosion of this soviet era city and um i mean to me that feels closer to like the the metaphor that the um author described in in the prologue or the, the foreword to the doom city it, it feels like okay this is kind of like a metaphor for the implosion of, of communism in the Soviet Union. But then like you have this scene in the uh, Dow Degeneration. It, like for me, it was my favorite scene in the movie where you have these uh, scientists talking about like trying to predict the future of the Soviet Union and these things. They, they start like working out and it's like, well, you know, probably like this isn't really sustainable. Is it like, you know, probably, you know, this is going to fall apart by like 1990-ish and they started talking about like well what happens if we become a democracy and then well at a certain point you're gonna have some authoritarian leader rise up and take over russia and then it's they're gonna start uh taking back these like states that split off and then they keep kind of going forward and forward and forward into predicting like what they think the future of russia is going to be and like it's such an interesting scene because it kind of catches up to the present and then it keeps going and going <laughs> and um i don't know it's a really fascinating film i kind of wish there was like some kind of documentary about the making of because it's it's like a little bit more fascinating to me than the film itself like especially when you have people being like i don't know if krasnovsky is like a filmmaker or a cult leader like <laughs> we're not sure what this even is and like you know people were like born in the production and people just like live 24 7 like in in this state but the whole like the film itself the production feels like a big experiment and then the films about this sort of experiment that like degenerates and implodes and goes off the rails. And uh, it, it just seems like sort of a natural fit. If you want to watch a movie that 
I should also warn people like even just this one film is is six hours long so it's not it's not like a a light viewing but if you kind of want to bite into something meaty this is I think a good option And, and I always think like the end of civilization people kind of imagine it as like Mad Max and I think like sure maybe that's that's a part of it but that's like three percent and the other 97 percent look like Satan Tango like to me that's kind of what the end of the world looks like and you know to me the Doom City kind of captures that feeling of of like things just kind of unwinding and getting worse (laughs) and then even when they're they're like running at their best that's when it's at its lowest like this that's like the the worst time to be alive is when everything's working properly and like you know you've got no goals but yeah i don't know i i think that that that's actually this book to me it's like you're actually manufacturing problems like when civilization's running fine it'll keep running fine you know and I don't, and I don't even think humans do it to themselves. I think that that's the idea is that there's an inevitable human need towards chaos. No, I think that there's like a really universe, universe problem of resources and and chaos and untamability. You know, I think that that's that's really what it is more than than anything than anything specific human nature does. That it's just some sort of universe way. And like, enjoy it when it's good. Like, don't 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 worry about. Cl- creating problems in this world don't, don't, don't sweat the big stuff well it's yeah it'll come to you you know there'll be heat death of the universe sometime but it won't matter <laughs> i'll have been dead for so long you know it's just i think that every human being has that realization when they learn someday the sun is going to swallow up the earth of like oh but it doesn't matter you know what i mean it really doesn't matter and i'll be happy and my kids will be happy and if i really want to think about it if humanity is still around in some way we'll have solved that problem when we get there you know we'll have have prepared ourselves somehow my exact takeaway from bill and ted face the music yeah that's a very <laughs> original takeaway <laughs> um i like those movies i think that yeah. those movies are very wise are very very wise um yeah Martin, final thoughts. Thank you so much for doing this episode. I feel like we've barely scratched this book. That, that uh, was, I feel like yeah. it's such a meaty book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as much as I was dreading jumping into it for that exact reason, this was a total pleasure. It was a pleasure to read, pleasure to discuss. Um, I guess if if anyone wants to like yell at me about the doomed city or whatever, I'm on Twitter at Movie Kessler and uh, that's the, the best place to kind of find me for whatever I'm up to. Yeah, I love these book episodes, which are both an excuse yeah, to read something that you was intimidating, but read a you book. Know. Like <laughs> no other podcast asked me to read a book for uh, for the conversation, so I'm I'm always excited to do that because I I like to read. I'm a I'm a slow reader, but I've got I've got full shelves of books. I've got I know. Books, so I, I was looking them. at them. I was looking at that big fat copy of Dune, thinking that looks great, and then I realized it was a fucking video. <laughs> got a big fat copy of David Lynch's Dune. I got the book too. I can't I got, see that it's David Lynch's Dune. I was just like, oh, look at that copy of Dune. That's that's thick as hell. Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh wait, it's a DVD or VHS, whatever the fuck that is. Get that well, out of the, my the, face. The DVDs are at like regular arms stretched out high because <laughs> I, I go to them more often and not. Yeah. Like the books, like I'll take a book out from the bottom shelf and it's it's in my hand for a month, so. <laughs> that's how that goes that's very reasonable but yeah I, thank I you for to doing do this, this again and thank you we always love having have you on again of course yeah. you're you're one of our you got most favored nation status anytime you want to come on we'll do whatever <laughs> you want you. 
And just to confuse everybody, since I think I ended our Total Recall episode by saying we're going to be talking about Doom City at some point, I'm just going to say, hey, Martin, I can't wait to talk to you about Total Recall coming up sometime soon. Oh, my God. We've <laughs> slipped out of time. time. <laughs> totally slipped out of time. I think, Martin, I think this is actually going up tomorrow. Just oh, wow. so you know how okay. quickly I'm going to turn this around. Yeah, because right. we haven't had a book podcast for a while. So okay, uh, yeah. this may, this may, you may turn around and be like, wow, Chris didn't edit out oh. anything. Every <laughs> bit of nonsense. That's fine. I, I don't think I said anything too embarrassing, but. No, uh. you were great. You were <laughs> great. You. And uh, let's talk more soon about everything sure. in general. Just talk, just yeah. talk about life. I'll find. Rap, I, rap I, about I, the I'm wars fine. with me, my man. <laughs> well, I've got uh, the, the articles I've been working on. I, they are progressing i'll i'll send them okay. i kind of put that on pause just to like finish reading the doom city um but the, I, I think you guys are really gonna like what i'm putting together and then We're super psyched uh, i don't know it'd be super fun to do psyched. another book episode maybe later in the year i'm not cool. sure i still want to do the errol morris first person stuff with you yeah sometime. errol morris I, I think we should definitely cover that um yeah, we've got we've got batman Johnny mentioned on the doing batman thing. yeah listen yeah. Talk batman. listeners <laughs> Listeners, send us your emails to prioritize this. We've just mentioned several things. <laughs> you put them in order for us. Send a ballot in order of interest, and we'll do them in your order. And Batman. I, I gotta, I gotta, yeah, I got a good way to go out of the episode, too. I got to do it because okay. we haven't done it. I thought we, someone would do it. Us Futurama fans, nobody's done it. But here's the end of the episode. Do. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, Doom City. I thought it was Dome City until you guys said it out loud City. just now. Stephen King is under the Dome City. <laughs> <laughs> Show up reading the wrong fucking giant book. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>